ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hey folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Hello, everyone. Uh, here we are, back again, for where the big boys play. I'm here with Chad, as ever. How are you, Chad? Doing great today. Uh, it was rainy all day yesterday, but today turned out to be a gorgeous day down here, uh, so I've been out cutting the yard. Uh, and uh well i was out most of yesterday uh drinking with my friend so uh, uh, sounds like your day was better than mine yesterday <laughs> and today um now we're here with a uh, a guest um our buddy uh loss from the pro wrestling only boards also known as charles how are you charles hey i'm good thanks for having me how are you today yeah uh, great um and uh, we've been looking forward to this show for quite some time um, for an opportunity to speak with yourself. Uh, as I've mentioned a few times, one of the uh, possibly one of the people who's who's seen more wrestling than anybody else on earth. Would you say that's an exaggeration, Chad? Uh, I would certainly say in the past few years, uh, Charles has probably watched as much wrestling as uh, almost anybody could claim to have watched. <laughs> so- so yeah, maybe, maybe in the past few years, honestly, I think before that, I was just someone who was just kind of new and, I don't know, I kind of dabbled in everything enough to be dangerous and then just was kind of loudmouth and had lots of opinions. But um, in the last few years, I've been able to watch more wrestling. So it's it's been great. So why, b- before we um, start talking about our show uh, today, which is Starcade uh, 89, why don't we take... Uh, why don't you take us right back to the star, Charles, um, and tell us a bit about yourself as a wrestling fan? Sure, sure. Well, I think the first memory that I have um, is probably right around the time of maybe Starcade 83. And it's a very vague memory. So, I mean, I'm only um, I'm 33 years old, and that show was 30 years ago. So, obviously, I don't remember any details of it. But I do remember watching something on some television show at some point that had highlights of Starcade 83. And that's the very first thing that I remember seeing. Um, from there, I remember I went through phases where I, I sort of liked it and sort of didn't. I remember um, being a Cindy Lauper fan as a kid, and then she was involved with the WWF at the time. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I remember... The um, the WWF commercials for the action figures, the bring home all the action, that, I don't know if you remember that, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's, you know, obviously one of the first things I remember, but I, I mean, I was kind of into it, mostly not, until probably, I would say, or maybe 1988 or so, so, um, like, the first angle that I saw that really, really stuck with me that I'll never forget is... Uh, Barry Windham turning on Lex Luger and joining the Four Horsemen. Um, just that, plus the aftermath of Dusty um, 
being attacked. Well, the Midnight Rider, I should say. We still have no proof that it was Dusty Rhodes, but um, <laughs> but um, Dusty being attacked in the locker room and everyone screaming and trying to unmask him and everything. And then from there on, I was pretty hooked. Um, I I went to now. I was kind of in a, a weird area. I wish I would have been watching a few years earlier, not that I would have been old enough to really, I guess, appreciate it, but. Um, Mid-South, I lived at the time in Little Rock, Arkansas, and Mid-South Wrestling was the territory that ran there more than anyone else. And um, they did shows regularly about 10 minutes from my house um, during their heyday. So uh, it's kind of sad that I never got to see any of that, but, um, but it, it, you know, it's cool that it was nearby. And then Memphis was maybe two hours away from where I lived. And, um, I did actually, and I don't remember a lot of details about the shows themselves, but I did actually go to Mid-South Coliseum a couple of times and see, um, some USWA cards, but I just don't really remember too many specifics. Really, I guess my first live memory, um, there was a house show in 89 that was headlined by Ric Flair and Michael Hayes against, um, Ricky Steamboat and... Lex Luger. Uh, so I guess that was, you know, my first house show experience. And then a few years later, right around the time of Starcade, actually, um, or a few months later, I should say, there was a television taping that went like six hours. It was a ridiculous amount of time, um, right before Halloween Havoc. Um, so it was all the shows afterwards. And I guess the key thing I remember from that more than anything is that that was, you know, Doom was debuting at the pay-per-view, but, um, they were because the show they were doing the taping four days before the pay-per-view. And so, um, everything that was being taped was to be aired after Halloween Havoc. So we got our first glimpse of doom and I was like nine years old. And right away I was like, that's Ron Simmons and Butch Reed and everyone in my section kind of picked up on it immediately. So just kind of adds to the legend of that, that that's like the worst, um, mystery in the history of wrestling. But, Um, so that's, I guess, kind of the early, the early days of my story. I'm excited to do this show because, um, this was, I guess, as far as being a kid and enjoying wrestling and being really into it and thinking about it all the time. And this is probably around the time that it, that that was at its peak. So Starcade 89 is a great show to talk about. Yeah. So Arkansas, I mean, is that, I, I don't really associate that with being kind of a wrestling hotbed, but it's surrounded by... I mean, I'm looking at a map of the USA. You've got Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, uh, Tennessee, and Mississippi all around you there, which I which I do. I mean, most of those states I do associate with being big wrestling hotbeds. Um, were you kind of? It it looks like you were kind of in a one of those strange positions where you may have had access to quite a lot of different territories as you were, uh, when you were a kid. Yeah, and I think had I been a bigger fan like, or a little bit older for most of the 80s, I probably would have gotten to see more wrestling and maybe enjoyed a little bit more wrestling at the time. Um, because by the time that the 90s were here, um, you know, syndication was drying up. But, you know, even shows like ECW, which was kind of a hot thing at that point, the things that if I read Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I was going to read about ECW, I had no way of seeing that. Um so I think in the 80s it was a hotbed, but in the 90s I think everything sort of moved northeast. Um, and so I, I don't know that it was in the 90s, but it definitely 
it's probably fair to say that it was in the 80s. Uh, and were you always a kind of NWA fan rather than a, I mean, it sounds, you know, all your me- early memories there of, of uh, kind of Crockett territory. Uh, did you watch WWF? Was it was that something that you were ever into? Yeah, I watched the WWF, and honestly, I think I, I started reading like right away when I started really getting into wrestling. I started reading the wrestling magazines, uh, specifically PWI and the Wrestler and Inside Wrestling, everything in the actor family, and um, they were so anti WWF and anti Hogan, just incredibly so. Um, that I guess I think in a way that that kind of, that kind of stuck with me. Um, and so I would watch the show, but I was, I couldn't help but be influenced by that. And probably to this day, I'll be happy to admit there's probably this small part of me that, you know, we can, whenever I, you know, go on this anti WWF rant about something, we can probably tie it back to, um, PWI. But, um, yeah, I, I did watch the WWF. I liked Hulk Hogan a lot, actually. Um, and I liked Randy Savage and Mr. Perfect. Um, those are the guys, I think, that really stand out the most for me when I think about watching as a kid. Um, I remember renting WrestleMania four, um, and that may have been the first. I mean, I'd watched WWF TV, but I think that was the first show I'd ever sat and watched in full. And I just remember being bored to tears by it. So, I mean, you can imagine saying, oh, I'm going to give the WWF a shot. And then the very first thing that you watch is WrestleMania 4. It's not exactly <laughs> the best way um, to jump in. But, um, but you know, over time, I remember um, I started watching Superstars every week. Not long after that, there was um, an angle, and I don't even remember specifics, with uh, DiBiase and Jake Roberts when they were feuding. That I got, and I got really into that feud. Mm. Um so yeah, I did watch the WWF, and then there was this local fed um, called IPW International Pro Wrestling, and they had—I'm uh, trying to think—they had a lot of wrestlers that I mean, it was no one you'd ever heard of, but all the wrestlers were just plays on like their names were just puns associated with whatever was going on in pop culture at the time. So like the top heel was named Motley Cruz. Um, um, and I'm sure that, you know, there are others that I just don't remember, but I, I just remember watching that mainly because it was the lead in for worldwide, which, you know, I did want to watch. And so I just watched that to kill time. Um, you know, something, and I'll ask you both this too, something that I think is kind of interesting that sometimes people don't talk about it, maybe a little bit different for you, Parv, I'm not sure how syndication works, um, in the UK, but the lead in shows, for wrestling were always um, kind of interesting. Like I remember around the time of Starcade 89, actually um, every Saturday night, it was roller games followed by American gladiators, which had just started at that point followed by um, worldwide and then superstars. And then it was like one in the morning and I needed to go to bed. But um, I'm just curious for the two of you, like were there any lead in shows like that you remember like, you know, before you watch wrestling that you just watch just to kill time. Chad, uh, Chad, uh, do you want to answer that? <laughs> um, I mean, most of my, uh, memories of wrestling as a real kid, kind of before raw and nitro started up where, uh, one, the Joe Petticino big block on Saturday that would start 
uh, later on in Saturday night and then would go throughout most of the night. And I don't remember what led into that, but the one I do remember is on Saturday morning, I would watch a uh, power hour and Bonanza would, uh, would be the lead in for it. And I uh, just remember kind of anxiously waiting for the theme song and my dad was always annoying and he'd hum the theme song and then power hour would come on and i'd watch that so that's probably the most vivid memory i can think of as like a lead-in to a wrestling tv show for me yeah i mean for for us here in the uk as uh, as you may be aware uh wrestling was on sky television which you have to have a pretty hefty subscription for um and not a lot of people could afford that back in the day so most of my early watching for WF was done on VHS tapes or over friends' houses. Um, so I don't really have any memories of lead-in shows for that. But we had, um, as I mentioned uh, quite a few times on the show, we had WCW on at like 2 in the morning. And funny enough, the lead-in show for that was often American Gladiators. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, or it was uh, this uh, Australian uh, soap set in a women's prison called um, Prisoner Selbock H, an all-women's prison, where they call each other Sheila. <laughs> so, and I, I was quite a fan of, I was quite a fan of that. I was, I was possibly as into that as I was into wrestling. So that was a nice little block of uh, TV for me uh, at that point. Um, but yeah, I did also used to sit through American Gladiators uh, when it was on as well. <laughs> uh, but we also had the British version of Gladiators here as well. Uh, you guys have probably never seen or heard of that, right? But there's a, there's like a, I always remember the referee on that uh, was Scottish and he would used to, uh, I can't really do a good accent, but he'd, he'd always say gladiators ready. Was that a thing that they used to do on American gladiators? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It is gladiators ready. Yeah. I, I remember. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think there was like an international gladiator because, uh, on this show they had one gladiator who was, um, a little bit older than all the other gladiators, and his name was Wolf. He he was kind of a heel, like he kind of like played up to the crowd and got booze and things. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite quite interesting <laughs> the old uh, gladiator show. Um, <laughs> t- why don't you take us through the the, ni- the 90s, Charles? Uh, did you have any uh, periods where you stopped watching, or were you a fan all the way through? I was a fan all the way through. I think. Um... You know, just like anyone who's 13 years old, when you kind of hate life in yourself, um, I probably went through a period where I liked it less than I did <laughs> before that or after that. Um, but um, but that was a pretty short-lived. I mean, by 95 or so, I mean, I keep mentioning wrestling magazines, but really, truly, wrestling magazines were such a big part of me being a fan. Yeah. And um, so, you know, by 95, I was subscribing again to to everything um, that I was reading before. And then I think probably from 93 and 94, those were the years I still knew what was going on. I still paid attention to it, but those were the years where I was the least excited about watching. Um, But I mean, you know, it wasn't that I was completely removed from it. I I don't think there's ever been a point where I've been completely removed from it. But um, in 95, I got really, really into it again. And I'm not even sure why, because both promotions were pretty terrible at that point in time. I think it was just, um, I don't know, maybe that I missed it and and wanted to enjoy it again. I remember Halloween Havoc 94, which was Flair Hogan in the cage with um, Flair retiring. I remember being so mad about 
that show because I felt like, and it wasn't even anger toward Hogan, but it was anger because I felt like you, you had alternatives. You had the WWF, which was the Hulk Hogan promotion, and you had mm-hmm. WCW and the NWA, which was the Ric Flair promotion. And I felt like when Hogan jumped, he just engulfed all of it. Like, even though he wasn't in the WWF anymore, it was still a Hogan-like promotion. Um, and now he was in WCW, and WCW was a very, like, 80s WWF promotion at that point in time. So, I don't know, Ric Flair leaving um, just really, I, I guess, just frustrated me so much because, um, it, and I don't even know at that point if Ric Flair was my favorite. He might have been. I don't want to say he wasn't, but... That wasn't why I was angry. It was more that it just seemed like um, it, it seemed like all the things that were that were unique and that were good about WCW were kind of falling by the wayside, so that it could just become um, another version of the W the WWF. So I mean that ended up paying off. I mean, so what do I know? But um, but I remember just during that time just not liking that at all. Right, yeah, and I, uh, and uh, well, when we get up to it, uh, you'll see that uh, I also have quite strong views about that period. I mean, it's it's not so much Hogan; it's when you get you know Jim Duggan turning up and becoming the U.S. champ and things like that. Uh, right, right. Where where Duggan was never even like an IC title contender ever in the WWF, but yeah, he comes in straight away. He's the U.S. champ. You know, you know, it's, it, it was stuff like that which. Uh, which irritated me and, and still still does even looking back. Um, I think I think if you sign Hulk Hogan to a promotion, you have to build around him. Uh, otherwise, why even sign him? I mean, because he's Hulk Hogan. I mean, he needs to be the center of, of everything happening in the promotion. So Hogan being the top star, that never bugged me. I always felt like that was how it should be. And even far and away the top star, because, I mean, Hogan deserves that. But um, but I, I wish he had been pushed more as like the icon that people still believed in, and less as a guy who still thought it was the '80s and still acted like it was the '80s and was living in this fantasy world where no one knew the difference. Do you know what I mean by that? No, yeah, not absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> so um, I did- you uh, essentially stayed on all the way through the the, the Monday Night Wars, um, when I think most people would agree it was a good time to be a wrestling fan. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a great time, great time to be a wrestling fan. I switched back and forth constantly. I went through different periods. Like sometimes I would like Nitro more, and sometimes I would like Raw more. I actually remember in ninety seven, ninety eight, when you had like your Shawn Michaels and your Steve Austin. Like to me, in looking back, I don't know why I thought this because it was nothing like that, but it felt more like the old like Crockett type stuff that had kind of fallen by the wayside. Like it, it was a completely different type of presentation, but like it felt like people having conflicts that happened to be wrestlers instead of characters in these convoluted situations. And I think that's why I liked raw so much during that time. Yeah. I mean, well, my memories of being a fan around that time was that you kind of, you watched raw for your exciting angles and things and you kind of watched, I mean, you kind of watch Nitro to see all your old favorites. Like you saw Hogan. If you wanted to see Hogan and Savage and see what they were up to, you could flick over to Nitro and uh, there they'd be, nine times out of ten. Um, yeah. Uh, when was the uh, first time that you really saw any 
Japanese uh, wrestling or or anything that wasn't your kind of standard main two American American promotions? Uh, kind of a weird story. Um, I would think it was. I was in college, so I guess it was around the, the late '90s. So around yeah, '98, '99, somewhere in there. Um, I picked up one tape. I had enough money to buy one tape, and there was um, a guy online whose name I won't say right now, but who had um, bootlegs of things, and he had a tape that had um, a Ric Flair and. I'm trying to think. Yeah, Ric Flair and uh, Michael Hayes against Ricky Steamboat and Lex Luger match on it. And I thought, well, hmm, I, I'm going to pick that up because that might be the show that I saw live, not having any idea of how taping and airing worked at all. So, like, just because I never thought about it. So, um, I remember that. And then when I picked up that tape, like, that was part of a compilation. And it also had... Um, the Choshu um, Yatsu versus Jumbo Tenru match from All Japan, like the big one from '86, wow. um, uh-huh. that was on there. And then also was um, Maida versus Fujinami, and from New Japan, which is a pretty famous match. And then there was another famous match from All Japan Women. Um, that I'm trying to think of. It was Lioness Asuka against uh, Jaguar Yakota, uh, which is one of the more famous matches of the eighties. So that just happened to be stuff that I found when I was looking into that. And, um, I really enjoyed it, I guess, just because I, when you, when promotions like would air Japanese footage on television in the U S they always made it seem more subdued than it really was. And so when I saw like the, the Choshu tag where they're just really going all out and it's this all action match and the crowd is crazy and they're brawling all over the place it wasn't at all what I expected it to be. And mm. um, so, I mean, that was the first thing that I saw. And then, I, I guess, I don't know. I think after that, I just kind of picked up things here and there. I remember seeing the 95 Jacob because I was um, a fan of Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho at the time. And I wanted to see their match in Japan. So I picked up the 95 Jacob. Um, and I watched that not long after that. But those are pretty much the only um the only shows I, I specifically remember i may have picked up other things here and there and either never watched them or just you know they didn't really make an impression on me but th- that's the first memory i have of watching anything from japan and i mean i've always i've often talked about the concept of uh, exoticism uh charles um now that choshu tag that you mentioned is probably one of the best tag matches of all time <laughs> now, if that's your, like your first exposure to Japanese wrestling, did you ever get a kind of perception forming in your head that Japanese wrestling is just, you know, kind of had a mystique around it? Kind of, you you thought it was maybe all Japanese wrestling was was as good as that? <laughs> I don't know that I, that I ever had that perception. I think my perception, my takeaway from that was that U.S. wrestling and Japanese wrestling are a lot more alike than people think. Right. Um, because, and, and I mean that they weren't doing this entirely different style. I mean, they were doing suplexes and clotheslines and pile drivers and things that you see in American wrestling. It was just maybe the pacing was a little bit different and things that made the crowd pop were a little bit different. But, um, but yeah, I don't know that I ever saw like Japanese wrestling as inherently superior to American wrestling. Um, 
I think I just saw it. As, if anything, I, I walked away from it saying, okay, this is just really good wrestling. And it just happened to take place in Japan. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, only, the only reason I mention that is because, I, I mean, I can remember being a fan late 90s, early 2000s, and there was this kind of like, there were some people, especially online, who, you know, th- th- they did have this idea that Japanese wrestling was uh, basically inherently superior and that all of the best... Uh, all of the best matches that you could think of were all Japanese matches. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, and I also think maybe that the uh, the crowd thing is a bit of a myth as well. You know, the Japanese crowds can pop, right? They're not, they're not always sitting on their hands. Right, right. It's, it's just, I think what makes them pop is, is something different. Um, I don't know that in the U.S. people pop as much for stiffness. Um I don't know that it, stiffness even matters as much in the American style as it does in the Japanese style, uh, which has actually been, when I've watched things from various places, it actually makes American wrestling sometimes seem a little bit behind the curve just because it seems like they're just not hitting each other very hard, um, especially after you've just watched this match where you know they're laying in their shots. So that's really, I think, more than anything, that's been the biggest difference for me. But then you see, you know, an American match where, you know, they're actually throwing in their shots. I, I guess also another thing, and I, and I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I've always thought like there aren't as many transitional moves in Japanese matches. So there aren't as many um, leapfrogs and reversals and, you know, like, you don't get as much of like in the U.S. You can get a pop for moving out of the way for a high spot of a high spot, but in Japan you don't really get a pop for that, um, and that's not something that happens as often. So I think in Japan, like the style is more about the high impact moves, and in the U.S. it's more about, um, I guess, the resilience and the selling. Yeah, well, I mean, but I've only really watched the. Uh all japan the 80s all japan so I, I, i've still yet to see all of the much talked about 90s all japan stuff and i've still i've still yet to really watch it uh, other than a, a few key matches i've still got to watch all of the new japan stuff as well but uh, certainly from watching 80s all japan my perception was always that the matches were structured slightly differently from your they'd usually uh, the transitions were a little bit um it, it'd usually be moving from Matt work in the early going to um, throws to strikes, um, which is something that you don't that I don't think happens so much in American wrestling, where where you know there's a definite period where it's mat work and it's a definite period where it's strikes or a definite period where they're doing suplexes. Now, it, do you know what I'm, do you know what I mean by that? Have I just made that up? Or? No, no, I I, I think you're you're definitely onto something. I, I've kind of observed the same things myself. I think. Um, for me, and this has been interesting, just watching a lot of the '90s stuff. Um, I did to me, like if when I watch 1990, and I'll ask Chad if he agrees with this in a second. I don't really see a huge gap between the match quality in Japan and the match quality in the U.S. I mean, there are peaks and valleys in both, um, but I think the best matches in the U.S. are as good as the best matches in Japan. Watching 1991 right now, I feel the same way. Um, when I watched 1992, I felt the same way, but to me in 93, that's when the golf happened, when there was a huge difference in the match quality. And I think that was because, I mean, wrestling was kind of in a dark age at that point, uh, in the U S and, um, 
was trying to kind of find its way back. So you didn't have as many good matches on top. But I think until 93, I didn't really notice a huge difference in the match quality. I just noticed that, you know, some matches were great and some weren't in, in both countries. Chad? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, in 90, especially, uh, I thought that the, uh, you know, a match that we'll get to very soon, but Lex Luger versus Ric Flair from WrestleWar was, uh, you know, I thought one of the best matches of the year. I thought a lot of the tag matches that happened in the U.S. that year were uh, some of the best matches that took place worldwide that year. And I, uh, there was definitely a big difference when I did the 1994 yearbook uh between the u.s even even in 94 i think with the u.s you had some of the best matches it probably in u.s wrestling history as far as something like brett versus owen but uh that was kind of like a uh i guess a aberration compared to what you were usually seeing uh and going towards japan yeah reading your comments in those uh 1990 uh threads chad i, I get the impression though that certainly in the early part of the year, that you you think that there's a drop, like, uh, All Japan had a kind of marquee year in 1989, you know, a phenomenal year, just like NWA did in many ways. Um, but uh, my impression from your comments is that you see things dropping off a little bit uh, for a period there in 1990, is that right? Yeah, I would say, uh, I mean, in 1990, really, with All Japan, I didn't feel like the promotion really breathed until uh, Masawa took off the tiger mask and it's it's almost like a flip of the switch it's kind of one of the most amazing things just going through that yearbook and watching that because in the onset of 1990 you still have i mean the uh the tag team final match from the uh, real world tag league from 1989 that was a great great match that you know i thought was i think i ranked it like fifth or sixth in the uh, 1980s for all Japan, you know, almost uh, close to a five-star match in my mind. And it was just so, uh, everything just felt kind of bizarre and a little off in the first part of 1990. But once, uh, once Masawa kind of comes into his own and gets elevated and thrusted into the feud with Jumbo, there's just a lot of hate and uh, the whole promotion kind of feels revitalized. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that completely. So, so just before we move on here, um, Charles, I have to ask you, uh, what, we mentioned the pro wrestling only boards probably every episode here, and we I post on it most days, so um, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you, how did you get that started? What's the story of PWO? Wow, it's uh, a great question. I haven't even thought about that in so long. Um, let's see, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where to start. There was a board... Um, but I posted at years ago, like 10 years or more ago that I'm not even sure if it's still around, um, the smartmarks.com, which was a spinoff of I'm trying to explain the family tree of all this. It was a spinoff of Scott Keith's site, which was the smarts.com. Okay. I need to start back from the beginning. <laughs> um, okay. So let me take you back to like 2000, um, Scott Keith had a site at the time called Ransylvania, and um, he had, uh, I think he, yeah, he had a message board on um, 
I don't even remember what, what interface it was, but he had a message board and I started posting there. I think that was like 2001, actually. It was because I remember it was right around the time of the WCW sale. And that was the first time I'd really posted online at all. Um, and then he left the site and then some people, some other fans bought it and renamed it um, thesmartmarks.com, I guess, because he had, they had to change the name or something. But anyway... They changed the name, and there was a message board there, and I posted there for a long time, and it just was not, like, you know, a great board or anything. So um, a few of us just started, like, this little sideboard, which was called um, New Millennium Blues, and it wasn't just a wrestling board. It was kind of a catch-all board for, um, like, there was, you know, pretty typical stuff, music folder, movies, TV folder, stuff like that, but... The wrestling folder got pretty much all the activity, and so there were disagreements. Like, I wanted to make it more of a wrestling board, and some other people that were uh, moderating the site at the time didn't quite see it the same way. So uh, had kind of a peaceful parting of the ways, and then um, from there we formed Pro Wrestling Only and just decided, because it seemed like what was happening at the time, and this even happens sometimes at PWO, um, but what was happening a lot at the time on message boards was people were talking about wrestling, but then it would devolve into uh, personal attacks about political beliefs or religious mm -hmm. beliefs or um, completely off topic things. And I'm not completely anti going off topic. Um, I'm not militant about it. Um, but I think it, it was causing a lot of good discussions to just die because people didn't want to be involved in that. They felt like, um, I don't know, sometimes you found out kind of <laughs> disturbing things about your fellow posters that you may not necessarily want to know. And so we decided, well, let's just watch this board and make it only pro wrestling. When I say we, that was Good Helmet and I. So right. um, we started that, I think, in early 2007 and decided to make no, we decided that we wanted to do it where there were no off-topic threads at all we kind of eventually did pro wrestling mostly so we kind of cheated a little bit but um but if you'll notice there's no general chat folder there's no movies there's no music nothing like that because you can get that pretty much anywhere else so anywhere else that you post online you're gonna have a wrestling folder and you're gonna have the other off-topic folders and you can chime in with those and we both felt like what would make the board unique would be to have every single folder that exists on the board be something specific about wrestling so um so that's how it started. Yeah. And then over time, you know, we've grown in, in membership and, you know, I enjoy posting there. I'm happy um, that we have it. Um, I'm always nervous that there's going to be some major catastrophe and we're going to lose everything that we've posted on that board, uh, which would be crazy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the board, love posting there. Um, like everyone that posts there. So uh, I think we have good conversations. I think sometimes um, things can get a little spirited, but I mean, that's, I think, I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think when you're talking about things that matter for whatever reason, you know that they shouldn't matter to you, but they do anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you, you care about the topic and so you debate it, you know, pretty heavily, probably more so than if you were just having a conversation with somebody you were sitting next to who happened to be a wrestling fan, probably wouldn't get that intense in the, intensely into the debate but um 
but it's fun. You know, I, I think as long as I have no problem with things getting heated sometimes and getting a little carried away, as long as people are still having fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think there have been periods uh, where uh, different people have, um, you know, <laughs> uh, got involved in so many heated debates, they get burnt out for a while. But this is all part and parcel of being part of a part of a board. Right. Um, I, I actually like the fact that I don't know if uh, what Chad thinks, but I uh, speaking for myself, I like the fact that there are no outside of wrestling uh, sections there. Because, like, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily want to talk about films or music or anything else with uh, with all of those guys. I only really want to know what they think about wrestling matches and kind of bond with them over that kind of common ground, if that makes sense. Ch- Chad, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, one thing that I'll say about PWO is I think the reason that it is just probably 99% wrestling talk i think it kind of creates an environment where you do have these in-depth conversations and threads that really dwell deeper than any other threads dealing with wrestling that i've seen on the internet i think uh in some other boards you kind of here and there get some threads like that but just off the top of my head you know i can think of numerous threads on pwo with huge data dumps uh that you kind of have to really get into and uh read and you basically get a new education on your perception of wrestling which is amazing yeah no i i I think one of the one of the things is that uh i don't know how uh charles and uh will have managed to do this but they managed to collect um a lot of people who have a kind of perception beyond your kind of average fan i don't mean your average kind of modern wwe fan i mean your kind of average fan who who remembers the 80s too um because there's there's a kind of quality of uh insight that you get there that i'm for, for example okay that there's been this recent um big boss man versus haku thread okay now regardless of where you go on the internet 99 percent of threads looking at that are going to be looking at a couple of years where they were both in the wwf right um Whereas in that thread, it's automatically assumed that we're going to be looking at their entire career. That is stuff that Haku did before he was in WWF in like Montreal. Um, stuff that uh, Bossman did when he was Big Bubba, etc., etc. Do you do you understand what I'm getting at? I do definitely, and I think that's actually one of the favorite things about the board for me is that I feel like. I'm not sure that I would be as into wrestling without it. And what I mean by that is I think most people kind of have the mindset that you want promotions to continue turning out high quality stuff even now in 2013, because, you know, if that ends, then there's not a lifetime of wrestling out there that's been, you know, uncharted that's there to enjoy. And I don't know that that's true. I'm not rooting for the death of pro wrestling at all, but, um, but if it happened, I mean, in this just, it's going to sound worse than I mean it, but I don't know that I would be that broken up about it. And the reason for that, I mean, I would feel bad for the people that needed to work and, you know, had devoted their lives to wrestling. Um, so again, I don't want it to happen, but if it did happen, I don't know that it would impact me much as a fan because there's still so much stuff, whether it's actually new or not, 
there's so much footage out there that's still new to me. And every time that people talk about Montreal or talk about some lucha that I haven't seen or whatever, I just remember how much I still don't know and how much I still haven't seen. You know, I, I think <laughs> I look forward to at some point in going through all the available footage in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and getting a good handle on people like um, Luthez. You know, I, I think that'll be a fun project at some point. Um, and that's probably years and years away from happening. So I think I, I guess the point there is that when someone talks like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, you're having a debate about Haku and the big boss man, but you bring in all their work and, you know, these other territories that most people haven't seen. It just puts in perspective that we're not in any danger of running out of new wrestling to watch anytime soon. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm probably I'm sitting here in a room with uh with hundreds of discs of uh <laughs> footage that i haven't watched and at the rate that i uh watch footage i've probably got enough to last me for the next three or four years here um <laughs> and that's not that's not a joke um but then again i'm not the machine that either of you two gentlemen are uh, as we've established uh, quite a few times um chad any any more questions for charles here before we move on uh, no, not really. I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I know for me personally, one thing that's really in the past couple of years has revitalized my interest in wrestling has been the uh, yearbook projects that him and Will have collaborated together on. But uh, the good thing is that fairly soon, Charles and Will should be starting up PWO Radio, um, and they've already agreed to do some yearbook shows, so I'm sure we'll get a lot of origin stories on that. And uh, Charles was also just talking about kind of the board going uh, away and what a catastrophe that would be. And I've kind of just discovered I've had my own little catastrophe because I cannot find my 1994 yearbook document where I rank every single match. Uh, So I've had a little freak out over here. (laughs) Are Are you able to just get that from the board itself? It's still there, right? I, I that well you know I I do the thread where I rank my top 100, but uh, then I usually as I watch the uh, as I watch the yearbook I'll rank each match one through however many was on that, mm-hmm. and just a little word document and I've somehow misplaced that so uh, not oh. too happy about that. Oh wow wow I hope you find it because I. I... <laughs> In a weird way, I think it would actually be awesome if someone like mentioned how great a match was, and you could say there were 374 matches that, that were better in that in 1994. Here they are. Bam. Well, that's, um. I mean, yeah, that's that's one thing that I really like, because uh, even a match, uh, I mean, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm looking at my 1990 yearbook list now, and so Shawn Michaels versus Ted DiBiase, I think... Most people would think that would be, a, you know, a pretty good match. And it was okay from 1990, but have that ranked 196. So, I mean, there was, in my mind, there was 195 matches better than that just yeah. in 1990. So, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> and that is a pretty good match <laughs> from, my, yeah. from, from my memory anyway. Yeah, I think in, it's probably about the same for 94. I think 94 probably had better match quality than 90, and I think Chad agrees with that. But... Um, but still, I think it's probably about average for wrestling to have at least 200 matches a year that hit three stars or better, um, just at least from my perspective. So I mean, you, you, there is a lot of good wrestling that takes place every year, even in years that are worse than others. Yeah, no, I, I'd say, I mean, it, it, to be honest, um, yeah, it, it, for my, I, I'm 
interested to see what uh, NWA's uh, average um, three-star plus rating would be um, for the year of 1989. Because, um, I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of good matches just on the just on the pay-per-views and clashes. Uh, that's without all of the TV in between. So I'm guessing. Uh, I'm guessing that this year that we've been looking at recently, Chad has got a hell of a lot of good matches. Uh, I mean, I, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would say just between NWA and uh, and a company like All Japan that had amazing 1989s, you're probably looking at maybe 75 three star plus matches just in those two promotions. Yeah, I know. Well, WF didn't have a terrible year in 1989 either. Right. Yeah, and, and Chad, something else to consider for 1989 is. I haven't really gotten into the Lucha much, but there are a lot of El Dandy singles matches from 89, too. So think about that. <laughs> yeah, that can, only, that can only be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but what, what, uh, what were USWA up to in 1989? Because the, the 1990 stuff I've seen from them has been quite good, too. They, um, that was Eric Embry versus Skandor Akbar. So that was kind of the central feud of the year. Right. Uh, one of my all-time favorite angles happened in the USWA in 89 um, when Eric Embry came out into this interview that he used to be proud to be in world-class championship wrestling. And he used to come out and wear his world-class t-shirt with pride, but that the promotion had become a joke. So they were kind of playing it off like Akbar had like the entire world-class board of directors in his pocket and like it was just the shadow of his former self. And so they did this show where... Um, Embry won a match, and I forget what the stipulation was exactly. But anyway, after the match, they like tore down the old world class banner in the Sportatorium and replaced it with the USWA one. And it was this big emotional moment. And I remember thinking when um, Bischoff was working with the buyers um, to find a new company to um, finance WCW in 2001, that if they were going to really like repackage WCW and try to make it clear to people that it things were not going to be like they were in the past. It's something like that would have been really cool too with, you know, just everyone just kind of admitting that WCW is not what it used to be anymore. And, you know, let's destroy it. And so you just have this huge riot on pay-per-view. I think it would have been great. Yeah. That's that, uh, that's that PYU high match. We were yeah, talking the, about last time, Parv. Yeah. The, the one, uh, the one that Gordon Sony was talking about, right? Yep. Yep. Okay, so by the, there was a, also a USWA brackets Memphis uh, in that same time frame, right? Is, or did that not come into being yet? Yeah, yeah. They um, Jerry Jarrett uh, stepped into world class around the end of '88 and was there through the middle of well, except for a brief period at the end of 1990, he was there through the middle of '91. So yeah, during that time they were kind of sharing talent, and um, you had a lot of wrestlers working in both places. Okay. Right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's move on then to the, uh, to the wrestling observers leading into, um, leading into Starkid 89. Um, that there's, there's not too many, uh, issues here, but he has quite a bit to say in each of them. So November, uh, 27th, uh, this is Meltzer, uh, it's November 27th, 1989. He says, uh, that Clash 9 is the second show in the history of uh, The Observer to gain a 100% approval rating from its readers. 395 thumbs up to zero thumbs down. 
<laughs> the first uh, show was uh, WrestleWar 89. That also got 100%. Uh, percent. Does that surprise you at all? 100% thumbs up. I mean, I mean, I would definitely give that show a thumbs up, but I, I mean, again, I think this kind of shows that in retrospect, I mean, I think for both me and you, Parv, watching these shows, we for sure would rank uh, Great American Bash above WrestleWar. Yeah. And uh, also for me, I would rank Clash 6 as an overall show ahead of Clash 9. That's not to say the other two shows were not thumbs up shows, but I think uh, the former shows that I mentioned are more definitive. I, I really like Clash 4 too. Yeah. Yep. Um, so 3,216,000 3, homes watch Funk versus Flair, which is a 6.3. Not bad. Um, for the time. Uh, the current booking committee is uh, made up of Flair as the head, with Kevin Sullivan, Jim Cornette, and Ollie Anderson as the assistants. There's talk of replacing uh, Jim Cornette on commentary uh, for Power Hour, because it's thought that it might be harder for the fans to boo him while he's on there. Uh, if, he, uh, if that happens, um, candidates to replace him are Michael Hayes, Kevin Sullivan, and Terry Funk. So I think you can see a little bit of this feeding into this show where, we, where we're having different people trying out on commentary. Um, any any thoughts on that? Do you think uh, having Cornette stay on commentary would have made it more difficult to boo? He is quite likable on commentary, I guess. But. Um, I mean, I think Cornette definitely on commentary is able to get over the storylines and to advance those. So he's very good from a promotional standpoint. So I can I can see that, but I don't. I mean, also at this time you did have, uh, you know, Bobby Heenan and other people that were heel commentators that were still able to retain their heat. So yeah, I, I find that weird thinking um, from that. Time. Any, any thoughts, Charles? Before we move on? Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think that's actually even by 1989 standards, I think that's pretty outdated thinking. The idea that a heel can't have any redeeming qualities and still be a heel. I mean, Jim Cornette was funny on his promos um, for years before that and was one of the most hated heels in JCP. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's something that would have made a difference. And even, I mean, not to go too far ahead, but Cornette continued on commentary for a large part of 1990, and every time I saw him work, he was able to turn the crowd against him. So I don't think there's anything to that at all. Yeah, and and I mean, just on the flip side of that, I, if you remember on a lot of those early WrestleMania shows, or at least on a few of them, there's this odd spot where uh, Jesse Ventura um, stands up and poses for the crowd and gets a big pop, and yet there's no there's no doubt that he's a heel on commentary, right? I mean, like it's it's possible to take one role in the booth and another role with the crowd is what is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I never understood why they did that why Jesse Ventura did that. That always drove me crazy. Yeah, I, 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 know, I, I still don't really understand it, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, in other news, uh, word is that there's no guarantee that we'll ever see George Gonzalez, a.k.a. El Guillante, in a wrestling ring. If he can work enough uh, to be worth something, he'll get a shot. But if not, you'll never hear the name again. So there we are. Well, we definitely hear the name again. Uh, but as we, uh, as you progress through the 1990 yearbook, Parv, you'll see that uh, they really 
you you could tell that they knew this guy was just going to be terrible uh, from an in-ring standpoint because they really milked him actually becoming a competitor uh, really as long as they possibly could. (laughs) A lot of enforcer roles are in his future on some of these shows. Well, believe it or not, at this point, the WWF were interested in... uh, There was a kind of... There was talk that he might become a WF. Um... I kind of have a perverse desire to see uh, El Gigante versus Zeus from around this time frame. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) That that didn't actually happen, though, did it? No, no. I think the world would have exploded. Yeah, Yeah. I don't don't think... uh, No. Or a nightmare match, whichever way you want to put it. I think think it's interesting that wrestling purists and, you know... Uh, Jim Ross um, was the guy who was pushing the most for El Gigante because I think his train of thought at the time, if I remember properly, was that we can get a lot out of him for a very short run. And by the time people figure out that he's horrible, he'll be gone. What, 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 what was he thinking? Uh, like a one, a one show run? I don't know. If it was, <laughs> you you only yeah, need to see him for like, one minute to figure like that out. Really Great thirty second run. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, he he is. Without, I mean, we haven't got to him yet, Chad. But he, he's got to be like one of the worst wrestlers ever, right? I mean, in terms of not being oh, able he, to. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly in the conversation. I mean, as as we go through our shows, we're probably going to invent our own drinking game of how many times he sneaks up on Ole Anderson uh, because <laughs> that drove me nuts. Uh, that Ole apparently never realized he was going to be there even though they promoted him but uh yeah he, he's just terrible this only just occurred to me chad but he's going to destroy the billy graham award when when he's uh... well i mean it's it's tough because again he's only there for such a short period of time i mean his segments are i mean and some of his shows that i can think of right offhand it's literally him awkwardly chasing ole anderson to the back so, I mean, it, it, that 20 seconds is brutal, but it is 20 seconds in a three-hour show. So, I, I don't know. It may uh, look better than you would think on the surface. So, so December the 11th, um, Sid Vicious has broken ribs uh, and a punctured lung, probably after Scott Steiner did what Meltzer calls a blockbuster suplex. <laughs> what what move is that, then? The blockbuster suplex? I don't know. Not I don't know what that would be. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I have with move names. I have no idea. Yeah, and well, more on Sid's injury in a second. Uh, but there's a lot of controversy uh, in this particular issue of The Observer about a New York Times article, um, which was about the NWA entitled, This Isn't Real, um, which is a big expose of, uh, of, wrestling, of, of wrestling at this point. Um, looking at stuff like blade jobs, but apparently they got blade jobs wrong in this, saying that um, the wrestlers actually cut their opponents with razor blades. <laughs> so um, the, the journalist didn't um, didn't get the full scoop here. But Milt, uh, Meltzer criticizes the journalism by saying that the story is disjointed. Many uh, NWA officials and uh, wrestlers were furious about this kayfabe breaking article. Uh, Amelta says that almost nobody believes wrestling is a pure sport today, and if they do, they sure aren't reading the business section of the New York Times. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, this is, this wasn't so much a story, but an observation by me. 
Uh, I noticed that the Iron Sheik is still working house matches for the NWA at this time. Uh, he beat Alex Porto on November the 30th in Meridian in a, in a match that Meltzer gave a dud. So uh, he's still on the roster there, still working squash matches, which surprised me a little bit. Yeah, that is surprising. Because uh, it was a long time since we've seen him. Uh, like, I think it was Clash 6. Yeah. That yeah. match versus Sting. Right? Sting uh what was that, Bash 89? That was Wrestle War. Wrestle War, right. Yeah, That's Wrestle pro- War. Probably the last time we've seen him. Uh, I, yep. think, I think the story there, I remember Jim Cornette did a shoot interview and talked about this. I think the story there, when this is classic WCW, they um, forgot that he was under contract, and his contract had an automatic renewal clause, and so it just rolled over. <laughs> and they, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> they still had him. So, so they decided he can work uh, Alex Poor 2 on, uh, on house matches. Okay. <laughs> I wonder how much the Sheik was getting for those uh, for those dates. I, I still, I mean, did, I've talked about this before. I still can't believe he had another kind of semi-main event run in him for um, for Vince. <laughs> like, in the next, in, considering what he was doing here in 1989. Uh, what was it, 1991? Yeah, 91 he comes in as uh, Colonel Mustafa. So, uh yeah, I, I still, I still uh, puzzling to me. December the 18th, so this is actually after the point uh, that Starcade happened, but um, Meltzer's writing it, it as if it hasn't happened yet. Um, he says, uh, he debates the tournament concept, which we can do uh, on this very pod in a second, um, but he kind of cops out and says, really, the success of this tournament concept will depend on the ratings, uh, which seemed like a bit of a... Um, bit of a way for Meltzer to not really say anything. Um, he criticizes the way, uh, he then criticizes the way that Sid's injury has been handled by uh, the booking committee because they're still promoting him for shows all around the country. Um, they 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 were basically booked around the hall to, horn to face uh, the Row Warriors. And uh, rather than just admit that he's injured, um, they promoted the shows and then announced, you know, announced that Sid was a no-show or something on the day. Um, and he calls that this a real Vern Garnier way of uh, promoting things. Um, and apparently Sid will be out till mid-January. Um, more on that in a second. Arn Anderson is back, and he was back on TV this past Saturday, um, which is good. And that's it for the observers. So th- there was one... Uh, Soli seems to um, not have many reports between November and the start of the following year. So he's just got one in between the last show and this one, where he, uh, surprise, surprise, shells Starcade. Uh, and he says the uh, the Iron Man tournament, um, he, he praises it for being innovative and um, congratulates the end of WA uh, for the concept in his personal words. So not a lot from Soli there. Um <laughs> So, just before we get to the start of this, uh, I had a countdown show on my uh, feed here. Did you have that, Chad? I uh, did not. I have the, actually an old uh, DVD of all the Starcades, so I popped in one of those. Ch- uh, Charles, did, did you have uh, this countdown show? I did, but I I got <laughs> bored with it and just skipped to the show. Um, <laughs> one, one thing that I, I will say, though, about the countdown show is that there was a Ric Flair... Mike Rotunda match from television that looked really, really good. Um, but I want to see him full. Yeah, well, uh, 
I thought I'd, uh, I'd I'll just give you a quick run through this countdown um, because it it does uh, kind of mesh with a couple of things that uh, Meltzer talked about as well. The first thing that we see on this countdown, after a brief intro from Jim Ross, is this Ric Flair versus Mike Rotunda match with Lance Russell on commentary. Um, and it looked uh, pretty good. Mike Rotunda still hanging about in his varsity club gear at this point. Um, and, uh, yeah, Flair beats him with a figure four. So it'd be interesting to see that match in full. Um, then, I mean, essentially what they did with this uh, countdown show, rather than recount angles and things, they gave you a little look at a kind of highlight package. Uh, or not even so much a highlight package, but just like clips from previous matches of each of the contenders in the tournaments. So we got uh, Luger versus Brad Armstrong from Worldwide, and he won it with Power Slam. We got uh, a clip back to Luger versus Flair at Starkid 88, which was really weird to see because, of course, Luger was the face there and Flair was the heel, and J.J. Dillon was there. Um, so that was uh, interesting that they clipped that in there. Uh, we got to see a bit of Great Muta versus Dick Murdoch from Power Hour, uh, with uh, Dick Slater interfering. So, so I got the impression that they were taking footage from all over the place here. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure um, this was from a few months back when Slater and Murdoch were still around. Mm-hmm. Um, we got some Muta versus Eddie Gilbert, um, and Muta replied uh, what they were calling a Japanese sleeper on Eddie Gilbert. Uh, we got some Sting versus Rip Morgan action, uh, where Sting won with a Scorpion Deathlock. And then we got that Sting versus Iron Sheik match from uh, WrestleWar 89. And it wasn't any better this time around either. I, I sat to say, uh, the <laughs> matches you're going through, I don't know if that's the best uh, sell job for the pay-per-view or not with some of these. It's kind of weird that they went, uh, that they went this route. And then they turned to look at the um, tag contenders. So... First of all, we got to see the Row Warriors versus uh, the New Zealand Militia. That's Rip Morgan oh. and Jacko Victory. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I did uh, specifically look out for how fat Jack Victory was here. And he didn't look as big as that guy we saw last time, Chad. I don't know if this was like footage from earlier in the year or something, but like I still struggle to believe that guy from last time with Jack Victory. <laughs> Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, so each of the tag contenders get uh, one match each only. So we get the Skyscrapers versus a pair of jobbers uh, with Norman, uh, the lunatic, wandering down the aisle eating a chocolate ice cream. Um, so this is the countdown show for the pay-per-view that is just about to air, okay? So presumably they, they put this on the TV um, in order to try to get you to buy it in half an hour before it was on. That's how countdown shows usually work, right? Mm-hmm. But, and they were still advertising skyscrapers here at this point. And I do sit, think that Meltzer had a bit of a point that, you know, they, they left it quite late to announce that Sid Vicious was injured here. Yeah, I mean, when we get to the actual show on commentary, they were saying, like, this afternoon they decided to pull the skyscraper. So I don't know... I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not a doctor, so I don't know if they didn't realize how severe the injury was or if they were just going to play it out as long as they could until the actual show and then announce that the skyscrapers were not going to be in the tournament. But it, it does seem kind of cheap that uh, 
one of the, I mean, there's only really eight competitors on this show, and one of them gets replaced at the last minute. And, and I also think it's ridiculous that they would do a pre-show without any emotional hook for the show at all. Um, I mean, Starcade was already kind of a risk, the way that they were booking the show, because it really is something that's going to cater more to a hardcore audience than it is to a casual audience. I mean, you could say that about a lot of things in the NWA in 89, but I think it really, really applies to Starcade more than any other show. And then it's like the pre-show just emphasizes that even more because they didn't, like, did they even replay the angle from Clash 9? No, not a single angle was on this show, was on this uh, countdown. And Jim Ross didn't mention the angles either. He just said, you know, and here's another great team for the Iron Man tournament, the Steiners. It's just, it's just weird because they actually shot, to me, at the end of the clash, like the angle with Luger destroying the trophies and, you know, all that like was really well done. And so why wouldn't they play that up and hype it and make it, you know, now, you know, for the first time in a year, Ric Flair and Lex Luger are going to face each other. And Ric Flair, you know, Luger's wanted this match for a year and now Ric Flair has a reason to want this match, too. It just, it just seems weird that they wouldn't play it up that much. Yeah, it, it's an odd backward... This counter show is an odd backward step for them because as 89 has developed, they've definitely gone in much more for the angles and storylines in the build. You know, it's been a lot more noticeable to us, Chad, I, I think, um, as we've gone forward, you know, c- compared to what they were doing in, like, 84, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we we got to see a bit of Steiners versus a pair of jobbers uh, and Doom versus a pair of jobbers. Um, uh, the jobbers that Doom face, I think, were called Rhubarb Jones and uh, George South, who, who's who's quite well known. Um, and this uh, was a really good. This of all the matches that I that I sat through on this countdown, Doom versus uh, these jobbers was quite good. They uh, they really destroyed uh, George South, and they gave him a hammerlock slam. Focused, there was really good focused uh, work on South's uh, arm, and uh, he submitted to an armbar, which is something you don't yeah. see. It's something you don't see every day. So, no. Uh, Doom worked a really scientific squash match there, which is what, not what you, you'd expect. Um, so that brings us on to the show. Then um, we start out with the national anthem with no singing. Uh, and I thought of you there, Chad. Did you, what do you think of this national anthem? Uh, this was about as generic a national anthem <laughs> as you could get here. Um, commentators are Jim Ross and Terry Funk, uh, who is only going to be the commentator for singles matches, and Jim Cornette, um, who is going to be the tag match com- color commentator. Um, in an interesting concept here. Yeah, uh, I, I like this. I like this where you had sort of the uh, the uh, singles expert in funk and then the tag expert is cornet uh, that kind of rotated in and out of the booth did you like it charles the uh, the back and forth i did especially because i think the chemistry that jim ross has with both of those guys is really strong so and plus it, to me it kept the show fresh you know because oh yeah there's cornet you know you kind of forget about him until he shows back up so yeah i, I did like that yeah, no, I enjoyed it too. I think that both of these partnerships work quite well. Uh, Jim Cornette explains the rules here, which is that there's going to be a round-robin tournament, the Iron Man tournaments, 
Um, for a pinfall or, or a submission, you get 20 points. For a countdown, you get 15 points. For a DQ win, you get 10 points. And for a draw, you get 5 points. So what do we think of those rules? I, I mean, I think this is something that Charles alluded to earlier about them really kind of uh, catering to hardcore fans because... You know, me now being a veteran of watching many G1 climaxes and tournaments throughout wrestling history, this is a pretty basic uh, basic tournament structure to me and was easy for me to follow and realize who had how many points as we went along here. But I can, I can also understand that if I was seven or eight years old, not having a clue like what was happening or who was actually winning. So I do think in that regard, you kind of handcuff some people that were not able to pay as close attention to it. What do you think about a countout being worth more than a DQ win? I, I mean, I kind of like that, though, because at least, uh, well, and that's probably one of the few things they did right here, because as we'll see here, I mean, to me, if you get a DQ win, you don't, I mean, you didn't actually do anything. Right. So I, I, I can understand uh, the, the count out finish that we do see on the show, I actually thought was pretty clever and uh, resulted in somebody actually taking some initiative to win the match. So I had no problem with that structure. To, yeah. me, to me, here's the biggest difference between this uh, promotion and the WWF. If Vince, I don't know if he did this for WrestleMania 4, but I think by this time, if he was doing a one-night tournament, he would have done a tie-in with another business of some kind where maybe you go to 7-Eleven and buy a soda and you get a, a tear-off card that helps you keep track of the points in the tournament or something like that. Or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they could have marketed that a little bit more. Or, or maybe you go by, I don't even think they had a, they, wrestling wrap-up was by mail order only, which is something else really stupid. Why not put a magazine on the newsstands? But, I mean, they could have done something even where, go buy the latest issue of this magazine, and there's a free tear-out included where you can track how many points each wrestler has all night. Just because I think that some kids, like myself at the time, who was really into the magazines and stuff, like would have definitely done that. And um, to me, if they're going to go, you know, like all sporting event with it, why not go all the way with it? No, yeah, I think uh -huh. you're de you're you're definitely right there. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember it's it's not wrestling, but I I remember having like the newspaper cutout for the World Cup, you know, and you you keep track of every single result. What you can do is it, you know, ten year old or something. It's not it's not so complicated that you can't you can't follow along. So, um, yeah, I I did think that if you were a real sneaky heel, you could kind of game this tournament to your advantage. I mean, I, I can see why the DQ is worth less than the pinfall or, or the submission. But let's say you can get a cheap pinfall in the first match. You could get your manager or valet or something to just come and knock you out, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> get two cheap DQ wins. <laughs> is that not... Uh, would, that be, would that be out of the question? I, I that, mean, that, that's certainly possible, but uh, I, I guess out of sight, out of mind for this tournament, thankfully. Well, all you need is 40 points, right? <laughs> just, to, just to get the win. One, one pin, two DQ wins. Would have... Uh, that have been your shortest route to victory there. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Gary, <laughs> Gary Michael Capetto introduces the tag teams. Uh, so it's Doom, coming who come out with Woman and Nitro. The Woe Warriors, with our favourite Paul Ellering, sporting a new kind of look tonight, with a kind of bigger beer than usual. Uh, the Steiners and yeah, not Paul Paul Ellering uh, was not looking very precious. His <laughs> uh, his nickname here. Yeah, he's got kind of got a new look, hasn't he? Um, and yeah. then the uh, the Wild Samoans with the big Kahuna. So not the skyscrapers. Um, and the Wild Samoans weren't uh, the Samoan SWAT team. They were Fatu and the Samoan Savage, who I thought was sacked, but clearly he's been rehired here. Um, what, what do you think about the Wild Samoans as a as a replacement for the like if you were if you had bought a ticket uh, for this event and you're expecting to see the skyscrapers in this tournament, how do you have felt about the Wild Samoans being the replacements? Um, I mean, I, I, on one point when they first announced the teams, I was kind of thinking, well, why did they not go with the Midnight Express here? Yeah. Uh, it's, especially as we go along, it's not like the Wild Samoans are the uh, most buried tag team. That'll go to another uh, tag team that gets the zero points throughout the tournament. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird, and I think it's pretty clear to see uh, that they, I mean, I mean, in, in some regards, like I was saying, with the Meltzer criticism of it, I, I mean, to me, the booking of the show, though, did show that they kind of thought the skyscrapers were going to go because the booking, to me, seems to, they booked the same show like it'd be with the skyscrapers, except they had the Samoans in there. But, but uh, it, isn't that, like, they, they, knew, they, knew, they knew that Sid was injured for, like, a couple of weeks, at least. I mean, why wouldn't they had time to change the booking? I don't, I don't understand that. That's that's why I'm saying it may have been a deal where somebody or Sid or something was dumb enough to think that he actually could have went on this show. I mean, I mean, who knows? That may be giving NWA and WCW more benefit of the doubt than they deserve based on their track record. But to me, there's no reason that like the last tag match would have been the Samoans and the World uh, Road Warriors. So, so from a more selfish, smarky perspective, uh, Chad, I was quite happy that um, we weren't going to see three matches from the skyscrapers tonight because I don't think I could have sat through it. Uh, I was thinking that at the onset, but as we go through the shows, I don't know what we got was much better. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I. Um... I think, yeah, with with the Samoans, they weren't even really being pushed on TV at the time. That that's what's so weird about them being the replacement. The Midnight Express, I know that they weren't like a management favorite at that point because of Jim Hurd and Jim Cornette having their their problems. But but the Midnight Express were involved in a feud at that point. They were on TV every week. Um, they were more featured. Even the Freebirds is, and I'm not saying I want to see three Freebirds matches in one night, but the Freebirds were the former tag team champions. It just the Samoans seem so random because really, since um, they split from Paul E, they haven't even been they haven't even had anything going on at all. So it's just weird that they chose them. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's, they made it seem like it was their first event back. Really, they were calling them the new Wild Samoans, weren't they? And I think they I mean, they were acting like this is the first time we've seen them in a while on commentary. Um, so I don't know when their last appearance was, but uh, I think this may be a kind of 
re-debut of, of sorts for them. Um, the first match was Doom versus uh, the Steiners. Um, and almost immediately on commentary, uh, Jim Ross and Corny come clean on the seat injury. Um, and uh, I can see Bill Apter at ringside in a fetching red jumper. Did you see him? Yeah, he was uh, definitely prominent throughout this show. <laughs> Took a lot of photos. I don't know how many ended up on PWI, but... Um, yeah, and as this starts, uh, Corny uh, references a tournament in Japan, uh, which I quite liked. He said, we've seen tournaments in Japan. Um, we've seen elimination tournaments here in uh, the United States, but this is the first time that they've kind of been combined. Um, and then Jim Ross uh, mentioned that fans are still arriving at the Omni. And uh, Quinette says, maybe they're at the Midnight Express uh, concession stand there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, was this just that? Was this them trying to cover for some empty seats in the arena? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the attendance for this show. Uh, everybody knows that I'm located in the Georgia area, but I'm not going to give uh, my uh, fellow countrymen a pass on this show because the crowd. Uh, as we go on, I thought it was pretty terrible for this show and also very sparse. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of that kind of goes into what we discovered last show, Parv, and that they did a Thanksgiving show yeah. uh, about three weeks in the same arena before this one. But, uh, I mean, 6000 for the Omni for Starcade, that's pretty terrible. Yeah, and just looking at uh, the Observer here, he said recent Omni shows have been drawing upwards of 10,000 fans. Yeah. Uh, while, he, while he didn't expect a sellout for this, um, because there weren't any grudge matches as such, this event only drew 6,000 fans, of which only 5,200 5, were paid. So that's a gate of 70,000. That's not really good for your kind of uh, biggest show of the year. Yeah, I mean, I know earlier on in the year, uh, there was an Omni show with Michael Hayes versus Ric Flair. <laughs> for the uh, world championship that did really well in the Omni. So they had drawn in that building before that year, but uh, certainly not tonight. And and, and he, he does say here that um, there were people arriving late. So when the card started, there were only 2,000 fans there. Well, I think they said it started at like 7 o'clock. Yeah. And, and it's on a Wednesday night. I'm pretty sure this show took place. Uh, so... Atlanta Parv is notoriously one of the worst uh, traffic cities in the U.S. It's it's absolutely horrible traffic wise, uh, and a lot of people live in the suburbs in Atlanta. So I can I can certainly see how that would have been a problem for people late arriving. Yeah, and also I don't know if it was the case for this show, but I do know for I mean for a lot of shows around this time, WCW was notorious for putting the wrong start time on tickets. And it's very possible that that happened here. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 he does say that Omni shows traditionally start at 8 p.m. So so it may well have happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. You could, I mean, you'd think that uh, they'd know how to book a show in, in, in Atlanta, of all places. Um, so what did we think of this match? I'll, I'll go to you first, uh, Charles. Um, I thought this was a pretty solid match. I mean, they worked pretty stiff. I thought Scott was really good as face and peril. And the Nitron stuff that was on the outside got really good heat. Um, 
I don't know that it started off so good. I think it kind of eventually just turned into a good match through sheer will. Um, when, uh, you know, I like that they actually paid off Nitron's interference with Rick knocking him down before the finish. Um, I don't know how I feel about the Steiners winning by count out when, um, when it's the first match on the show, but I, I do think that this was a pretty decent match. Chad. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought, uh, it was mostly rudimentary and basic, but there was a couple of spots that I liked, uh, with the uh, I like the uh, kind of hope spot they did where one of uh, Doom was trying to suplex Scott back into the ring and he grabbed the top rope and pinned him. Uh, and then, like Charles mentioned, the Nitron spot was really big and got one of the few uh, big pops from the crowd tonight. And I kind of did like the count out uh, finish a little bit because it actually showed some uh, pretty good resourcefulness for Rick. And uh, as as anybody that listens to the show knows, I'm not a big fan of Rick or dumb baby faces in general. And uh, this was, I thought was very smart and kind of clever how he realized the count was going on and rolled back in at the end. Yeah, I I quite like the count out win as well because it was establishing that it is a possibility for the rest of the show. You know that you you got to remember that there these are different types of these are different types of wins. And uh, if you think about it, that five points ultimately ended up costing the Steiners. The fact that they won it by countout and not by pinfall, uh, it became significant by the end, incidentally. Um, I I thought that Doom did quite an effective job of working heel in this match. There was a lot of kind of basic kind of cheating spots uh, during uh, Scott's uh, face in peril sequence. Um, Yeah, and uh, they did quite a good job of establishing Nitron as a threat. Because considering Doom had another two matches, and I don't, I don't know how used to, used to, uh, to Nitron the crowd were at this point, so they kind of get, got him over as somebody who could make a difference during a match. Um, yeah, not bad, not a bad opener. Um, plenty of uh, typical Steiner's bombs as well. Yeah, it was, it was all right. It's, it, it, it probably wasn't the like. In my mind, I think the Steiners versus Doom should be some sort of dream match, and again, it wasn't that. So, yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, like, I kind of think I may liked it more than the uh, the Halloween Havoc match they had. Yeah, it was it was better than that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me just have a quick look what uh what old Meltzer gives that one. He gave it two and a, two and a quarter. Yeah, that seems fair. Did you go along with that, uh, Charles? Two and a quarter? Yeah, yeah, that seems about right. I probably like it a little bit more than that, but not enough to debate it. So, Gary Michael Capetta introduces the four Iron Men now. Uh, it's Great Mooster with Gary Hart. Ric Flair comes out. Sting and Lex Luger. Those are the four competitors. Uh, it's not bad. Uh, it's quite, I'm quite excited for this tournament. Uh, as, it, as it's starting here. Um, and it's Sting versus his uh, sometime best friend, Lex Luger. Sting's uh, sporting the uh, the rat tail mullet uh, today. Um, and this is, uh, I think they've kind of got a bit of a mini feud going on at this point, Luger and Sting, um, after Luger destroyed Sting's trophy. <laughs> um, 
but they don't they don't mention it too much on uh, on commentary. Um, what do we think of this uh, match? I'll go to you first, Chad. Um, I mean, I thought. Uh, I mean, I thought this was okay. I'm actually. I couldn't think offhand. That I'm pretty sure they had, but uh, had they had a singles match before, Charles? Do you know? They had a televised singles match about two weeks after Starcade on TBS, but no, not before this. Yeah, so this kind of. I mean, I think in some ways the way they kept portraying it on commentary. Uh, even throughout like 1992 and later on, they this is kind of one of these feuds where uh, throughout WCW history, they have a decent amount of matches together, and I don't think they ever really clicked uh, real well. But this one I thought started off pretty good with the uh, really hot opening. Uh, the first minute where Sting skins the cat, he hits some clothesline and dives and uh, was really a house of fire and had Luger reeling, I thought was well done. Uh, one thing I noticed was the five-minute call that Gary Michael Capetta did in this match was literally about two minutes into the match. So we had a lot of kind of wonky uh, time calls throughout the show. This was just the first one where he called. He said five minutes gone by, and I actually rewound it because I knew there was no way. Uh, then, then you get a... Uh, this match uh, kind of had some control stuff, and uh, the, the finish was weird. Where uh, where uh, they kind of did this thing where they were supposed to both fall back into the ring over the top rope, and Lex was going to land on Sting and had his arm uh, on the rope to get some leverage to get the pinfall. Uh, so that that was kind of a weird ending. But again, overall for the match, I thought it was okay, uh, but pretty rudimentary. So here's something I'm going to ask uh, both of you here before I ask for your thoughts, uh, Charles. Watching this, I was thinking that this was almost a case of Luger kind of carrying Sting a little bit. Uh, would you would you would you say that Luger's come far enough, for, or that Sting is bad enough for, for that for that statement to be true? Um, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, Charles. Uh, no, well, I mean, I'll just say that. Uh, I mean, I think. Uh, I, I mean, I think Luger has definitely progressed, and in this match, I think it was clearly that he was calling the match yeah. because another kind of funky spot was uh sting charged in at luger at one point when he was on the ropes and looked like he was going for the dive and then just choked him uh, yeah no i know so yeah charles your, your thoughts on that particular talking point and then, and then on the match i guess yeah i think yeah i mean luger was the heel he was calling the match he, he probably was carrying it a little bit um the thing that impressed me most in this match is like the rapid bumping with the three clotheslines in a row right after Sting um, skinned the cat in the spot that, uh, that Chad mentioned. Uh, because, you know, getting up and down that fast is, I mean, it looks effortless, but that means obviously pretty difficult. And so I was kind of surprised to see Luger pull off something that athletic. Um, but I, I will say, I don't know, I, I think what bugged me even before getting into the match about this match is that there was no hype of this being their first encounter. You know, we kind of touched on that a minute ago. Um, you know, this is the first time ever that Lex Luger um, and Sting have faced each other and you're seeing it here right now live. Um, it just seems like it should have been played up more because those, I mean, those were the guys that were being pushed as the future of the company and for them to be having their first match and it just be kind of thrown away in the middle of a card, um, without it being emphasized, 
you know, the significance of it just felt off to me. Um, but as far as the match itself, I, there was one spot that I just absolutely hated. Um, I, I think it did become a good match, but when Luger's like ready to walk out and Sting has to go get him, I'm like, is Luger really going to throw away an entire match and then just hope that he gets two wins later? Like, what if Sting hadn't gone to get him when he had just left? Um, I really hated that spot just um, because, to me, it didn't make sense. It's like the only reason they did it was to pop the crowd, but within the match, it didn't make any sense at all, especially within the context of the tournament. Um, I also thought, like, the armbar stuff, like, right after, like, the really hot opening minute kind of slowed things down a little bit too much, but... When Luger gained control, it picked up a little bit. Um, they they messed up a few things. Like, I think when Sting rolled out of the torture act attempt, I think he was about to follow that with a high spot, like a drop kick or something, but he lost his balance. Um, and the finish was a little bit clumsy. I mean, there were good things about this, but I, I just, I don't think they worked well together. No, I, I, uh, I, I agree uh with that, really, I, I mean, I thought Sting's shine sequence was kind of lacking something, uh, despite the fact, you know, there were those rapid clotheslines that you mentioned, but most of his shine sequence was mainly an armbar. Um, not exactly kind of Mr. Electricity-type offense there. But I thought the match uh, picked up a good bit when, um, during Luger, Luger's stretch sequence, um, I thought he showed great intensity doing that. And... Um, Really looks good when he's on offense uh, at this point in his career, Lex Luger. Um, I liked his running inverted atomic drop that he did at one point. Um, my only criticism is that in the last, like, so competitors made a big deal of uh, counting the time, as you mentioned, Chad, even though um, he was doing it quick. Um, and I thought that Luger looked a bit kind of slow and like lacking urgency in the in the closing moments of this match. And Terry Funk even kind of covered for it. He said, no, he's looking for the draw. But then why, why would he be looking for the draw? That's only five points when he could be getting 20. Um, so he did get the cheapest possible pin that he could, which kind of make, made sense in terms of retaining heat for both guys. Um, but yeah, I thought that he looked a bit lethargic in that closing minute there. Um and, uh, yeah, so I thought it was a good match, despite some awkward moments, which I, I think is more or less the consens- consensus here. Um, now, Meltzer gives it two and a quarter, the same as the last match. Would you agree uh, with that? I would be around there, probably. So, Charles, about the same? Yeah, yeah that, that sounds about right. So, one of the kind of recurring motifs on this show is that they're kind of uh, giving you a lot of dream, what I would consider dream matches all in a row. So they're just kind of there without without much hype around them. So so the next match here is Doom versus the Row Warriors who come out uh, to no music. I didn't hear any music anyway. Um, now as this match starts, Jim Cornette says, by the way, Jim, that scoreboard girl, is that your daughter? <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which was a reference I didn't quite underst- understand there. But, but I think he just made a joke. Is that why you called your baby earlier? Um, so, big power wrestling match here uh, in prospect. Charles? Um, 
I thought it was pretty impressive that I, I have no concept, I guess, of how long it takes a woman to get ready. But um, but I thought it was pretty impressive that woman completely transformed her look in 15 minutes. Um, like, not just her dress, but her hair. So Yeah, she had that big kind of Marge Simpson hair. <laughs> right. So, so I give her credit for that, completely changing her look in such a short period of time. Um, I thought this was okay, but nothing really stood out at all. I mean, they worked hard. I'll give them that. But... There wasn't anything memorable about this to me. Chad? Yeah, that's kind of the same uh, sentiment that I had. I thought the uh, the control segment, one thing that I really called on was the control segment here by Doom was really a lot of kind of chin locks and stuff. And that followed up uh, actually a pretty nasty bump that Hawk did into the post to start that. Uh, but then they just did kind of a lot of uh, headlocks and then led into the finish with the uh, with the power moves of the Road Warriors and ended up with the clothesline off the top to give them the win. So already now, uh, you, it was pretty clear to see, you know, we're 35 minutes into the show and uh, at best, Doom could hope for a tie because they've lost a pinfall match here in their second match. So the Road Warriors would have to lose both of their matches and Doom would have to get a pinfall in their third match just to tie the Road Warriors. So it didn't look like uh, it was going to be a good night for them. So so my two notes here is that I thought the um, face in peril sequence was for Hawk was a lot more conventional than the way they worked the Scott Steiner one. So the, the Scott Steiner one had a lot of in, outside interference and if you remember there was that bit where uh, Rick Steiner was kind of down and out on the apron and the ref went over and stuff and um, this was a lot more like you said Chad uh, kind of standard uh, kind of heel stretch sequence um, my other big note is that damn they really jobbed Doom out here Not points for two uh, matches um, so w- what what are they thinking I, I mean Doom had been on the receiving end of s- some sort of push but now they're just jobbing them out Left and right. I think I think what they were thinking is, woman is going to be put with Flair in the next you know couple of months, and Doom is going to lose their mask and be repackaged. So no one's going to remember this, so they can afford to do a few jobs. That's that's the only thing to me that makes sense, especially because Doom was a team that just debuted at the pay per view before this. So it seems awfully early for them to be losing against every other top team. Um, so that's the only way, way that it makes sense to me. Yeah, well, I was a bit disappointed because I was backing them before this started because uh, it's been long enough that I actually forgot what happened on this show. So I would, they were the, my they were my tip to to go far. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I didn't do very well. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so the next match, Great Muta versus Ric Flair. This is kind of a weird looking match on paper. Uh, Flair comes out with uh, Ole and Arn. Great Muta comes out with Norman, the lunatic, rest of Santa, and Gary Hart. Um, so my note here is, is that Muta started out working this match, match a lot faster than anyone else uh, had worked so far on this card. Chad, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh... Muda comes out really hot, and this uh, match 
I mean, essentially features a couple of exchanges. We have the Dragon Master and Buzz Sawyer come out to try to interfere, and they get interjected by Arn and Oli. And then uh, Muda goes for a moonsault. Flair gets the knees up, and Flair cradles him for the pinfall. So there goes his uh, undefeated streak right there in about two minutes. I think this match went about two minutes long. So that was kind of... In, in some ways, it was kind of neat to have a flash pin. It was a real big surprise, but I don't know if that was necessarily the best way to end uh, Muda's big undefeated streak was in this fashion. Charles? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I I do think, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I also think that these two are, I mean, for the two minutes that they were in there, they worked a crazy pace. Um, I do think this was about as good as a match that short could be. Um, unfortunately, a match that short can't be all that good, but but I think that they did as much as they could with the time that they had. I thought it was um, really fun, actually. But um, remind me to tell you uh, later in the show why I think Norman as Santa was such a waste, because I had this great angle in my head that they could have done surrounding <laughs> that and share it with you later in the show when the time comes. Okay, the way he crops up again, right? we see him once more. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> my my big thoughts for this match is uh, that I thought it was a good sprint, uh, and this is quite a short sprint, I guess, but it was good for while it lasted. Um, and um, yeah, I I quite like the fact that um, uh, Flair went for the knee breaker in the figure four so early. Um, you know, Muta had come out uh, in this fashion where he was going to try to like jump Flair. So Flair kind of accelerated his game plan as well. I thought, you know, in the context of a two-minute match, that's pretty good. Um, so the next match, another yet another dream match, really. The Steiner Brothers versus the Row Warriors. Um, and as Rick is walking out here, I think he looks absolutely shattered. He looks like he's sweating and he's really tired. Um, <laughs> now, as this match starts, Jim Cornette, the insensible force meeting the... Uh, illiterate object. That's not a bad line. Uh, he says they're long on brawns and short on brains. <laughs> so what, what do we think of this, uh, Charles? I'll go with you first. Um, I guess my first thought was that I was like glad that it wasn't Doom again. I was feeling bad for them having to wrestle two matches that were you know fairly long back to back like that. I mean they didn't have much of a break between the two, so. Um, I was happy for Doom that they got a little bit more time. Um, yeah, I, I thought the clotheslines in this were great. I thought they worked a match that was appropriate for them facing each other for the first time. But I don't think the match ever really got to a level where it was all that good. Um, there was this kind of a scary moment when Scott was doing the belly-to-back on Hawk and fell backwards that looked like somebody was about to get hurt. Um and that George Scott finish, you know, with the double pin and one guy getting his shoulder up. And I, I felt that that, that, that was kind of weak. I mean, the Road Warriors versus the Steiners never happened again. It was never something that seemed like it was in their booking plans again. So I don't see any reason to protect that by, I mean, I just think they could have done a really decisive finish um, for the Steiners. Um, but I mean, it, it wasn't a bad match. I just, I think it could have been a lot better. 
Chad? I, I would kind of agree with that sentiment. I mean, the Road Warriors, first off, they only had... Uh, one, one thing we should mention is there's absolutely no pauses between the matches here. Uh, as soon as one match ends, they show a quick replay, and then the, the introductions for the next match begins. So the Road Warriors had probably about four minutes of total rest time between their uh, last match and this match. And I thought this match was uh, started out really fun. I love the uh, kind of uh, takedown Scott did where he grabbed the leg. Uh, and then it kind of went into a big power move type fist uh, with a bunch of clotheslines, shoulder blocks, uh, and suplexes. Some looked good, some did not. Uh, and then the end was the ending, which is kind of a cheap finish, but uh, kind of surprising to see the Road Warriors get pinned clean. I know Cornette really tried to uh, build that up on commentary, and I tried to kind of ratchet my brain, Parv, and I couldn't think of uh, any other occasion up to this time where we'd seen the Road Warriors get pinned clean. Well, well there was the world title loss, wasn't there, that they had? I can't remember how they lost the titles now, but... Uh... Were they stripped? Of the, I can't remember. How did they lose the titles? Oh, I can't even remember that either. But I, I know at that point I mentioned uh, on the show that it'd been like five years since they'd been pinned in any promotion. So, um, but I'm pretty sure they lost the titles to. Was it? Was it the? Uh, um, did yeah, they lose? It was, it was Clash Six with Teddy Wong turning. Right. Yeah. That's that, right. So, yeah. so that still was kind of a little cheap ass finish it wasn't completely clean so i mean my uh, my big note here is that uh in this match we get to see a belly to belly superplex how often do you see that move uh well not a lot and with the way it looked here hopefully <laughs> not much again um i i thought the steiners uh, seemed to be on top for a lot of this match um considering who, who they were in, in there with um yeah, I, I felt that they were kind of on top. Um, the Warriors did hit the Doomsday device, uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned it, uh, Charles. We got a George Scott finish <laughs> um, with an animal shoulder down. And uh, I just wrote in my notes here, Chad, holy shit, the Warriors took a pin. So yeah, I, I, I think, um, to talk to your point, Charles, I think this is the only way you get the Warriors to take a pin. I think that like the Warriors are the sort of team who'd rather walk than get pinned clean. So, I mean, clearly, even to be involved in this tournament, um, they probably like had to A, agree that they weren't going to get pinned properly at any point, and B, that they were going to walk out the winners type thing. Yeah, uh, which would have made sense to me between 85 and 87, but in 89... The Road Warriors were just another tag team, and so it's really strange that they protected them so much. But, but my my understanding is that the Warriors were even like this as late as like '96 and and whatnot. Like, you know, they were that demanding of bookers even at that point. I yeah, I, I don't I don't know that they got the memo when their peak ended so much. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I agree with that. So. This is uh, what I was thinking at this point is that we this is quite weird booking here. So so we've seen every single team now apart from the Samoans. So we're going to end the we're going to end the pay per view with three Samoan tag matches in a row. Yeah, that that goes kind of to my theory that they I guess thought that the skyscrapers that Sid might could have gutted it out because I see no uh, 
no other logic if they knew for sure he was not going to be on this show uh, that they would put the Samoans matches last. And also at this point in time with the points that we've seen, uh, Doom, which has one more match, is already mathematically out of it. Uh, so, you know, an hour into the show, what they, I mean, Ross did say they, they could play the spoiler role, but, uh, you know, we're an hour into the show and they're irrelevant already. You, you, you change the booking, wouldn't you? I mean, even if... I, I mean, yeah, I would think, uh, I mean, to me, the singles booking kind of flowed better than the uh, tag booking throughout this show. But, but even in that, you do have, uh, it's the next to last match when somebody gets mathematically eliminated. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't see, surely there was a combination between all these teams where... You could have had the final match be the uh, the final decider, and honestly, the way uh, that this show played out, I would have had this match as the final match uh, with the pinfall as it went down. Like I, I don't understand why the match we saw here was not the final match of the tag tournament because uh, everything else could have stayed the same. But with the signers actually going over and winning the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could have you could have changed it to the Steiners, or you could have had something. Uh, you could have had the same sort of type finish, but maybe with the reverse, where Animal gets his shoulder up or something like that, and have the same finish with the uh, Road Warriors winning the whole tournament. Meltzer actually gave that one three stars. So that's yeah, quite, quite uh, nice. I'm, yeah. I think I think that's kind of uh, him a little bit jaded by the power moves a little bit. I I wouldn't go that high for me. Um, And it it certainly didn't feel kind of as big of a dream match as I think they hoped to. The crowd was really dead in this match. I made a note of it. So, uh, but, but it was decent. I mean, up to this point in the show, we'd kind of had nothing spectacular, but sort of all sort of two star decent type matches in my opinion. I was surprised that the crowd weren't more into this match because, you know, they, they they popped big for Luger, Sting versus Steiners a couple of years later. So it's, uh, it's strange that they weren't more kind of amped to see that. Yeah, the Road Warriors are always uh, usually pretty uh, pretty big over in Atlanta too. I, I think this may subscribe to the theory that their, you know, their time in the spotlight was really passed on by this point. Charles, while you're on here, um, Chad has notoriously been down on the Steiners on uh, on this show. What's your feeling on uh, on the Steiner brothers and also on the on the Row Warriors? Uh, the Steiners are such an uneven team. I, they have some really great matches and some really disappointing ones. It, it's really kind of hard to for me to say what I think of the Steiners just because they were so inconsistent. Um, and really, I think their opponents were the ones that determined how good the match was going to be because um, the, the Steiners, all, I don't know. They always seem in their matches, like they're probably a little bit tough to work with just because they do require their opponents to take so many bumps and fly all over the place. And, you know, you, you, I guess if you're working the Steiners, you're going to have a pretty physical match, but um, yeah, I, I just, I don't think that they were a great team at all. I think it's, I think that's been a little bit overhyped through the years. I don't know that I'm down on them, but I just I don't think they were consistent. 
Um, the Road Warriors, I think, I, I kind of look at them as the Hulk Hogan of tag teams in that they were so effective that it almost doesn't matter if they were good or bad or whatever. Like, I, and I think they were pretty solid. I mean, um, Animal and Hawk were both, I think, pretty good in the ring. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that they ever really had any great matches, but I kind of put them in the same category as Hogan. Mm. You see, I, I, my, my fitting is that they were a lot less giving than Hogan was in a weird way. Like Hogan was kind of smart enough to know that he'd need to kind of be a sympathetic face for a lot of his big run. Uh, whereas I, I don't feel that the Warriors ever quite got that. It, it always feels like um, getting those guys to sell is a bit like to getting blood out of a stone. I, where even when they do it, they're kind of doing it through gritted teeth type thing. Although, although... I, I can definitely see that. And I think that was part of their appeal was that, wow, they're impervious to pain. So, so yeah, I, I can see that. Um, next match here, Great Muta versus Sting. Um, we've seen this one before, right? This this is not a uh, yeah, this exclusive. Is, right, uh, Great American Bash 89. Uh, this was kind of the first match in that last four match run. Uh, I, you know that I think that match went about eight minutes at Great American Bash and was a, a really good match. I know we both liked it, Parv. Yeah, so so this is mostly Mooter on top with some uh, good looking kind of nice elbow drops that he does and kicks and things. We get a superplex from Sting at one point. Um, Charles. Um, before even the match, I just want to, and I'll ask you both if you agree with this, um, Sting, when he came to the ring with his face paint almost off and just with no real fanfare or music or anything, the guy did not look like a star walking to the ring at <laughs> all. And I just wondered if either of you picked up on that too, that he looked very, very, I don't know, I'd never quite seen Sting in that regard, like where he just looked like just any guy on the roster. No, that, that That's interesting. That you mentioned that. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't... I mean, throughout this tournament, I think, uh, and as we'll get to the end of who eventually wins the tournament, I don't think this was kind of a big a, a moment for Sting as they wanted it to be, uh, or portray, wanted to portray it to be, and uh, that kind of goes along with what Charles just said here, kind of walking out. Yeah, I, I, I was actually thinking that because um, we, we talked about this a while back uh, Chad didn't we if you were going to go with like Sting or Luger at this point I, I feel like Sting has lost a little bit of his uh, his fizzle at this point I mean he's still over but he doesn't I don't know there, there, there does seem to be something a little bit uh, a little bit missing here but it could be yeah. it could just be that this is a weird Omni crowd tonight as well well and <laughs> As we go throughout Sting's career, I mean, it, we'll see most of his peak run with these shows. And I think Sting's always a guy where his most, I guess, triumphant victories seem a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, as we'll go along with Great American Bash 90, uh, Super Brawl 2, and then even Starcade 97. All his kind of big victories and triumphs in wrestling uh, seemed a little anticlimactic in how they happened execution wise. He's best yeah. as an underdog, really, isn't he? As a as a kind of uh, a, an underdog chasing type champ, which is why yeah, he's so I, good in I the beta so. matches. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And to me, he kind of 
he seemed just by doing that entrance, he seemed like a guy who really didn't understand his own appeal because, and we'll talk about Luger a little bit later, like um, the way that Luger changed his wrestling gear between every match. Part of Sting's appeal was that he was colorful. They WCW wanted to market Sting to children. So I just wonder why didn't Sting repaint his face in a different design for every match? Like those are the kind of little things that I think kids remember and it just it seemed really weird that he didn't do it. So what you're saying is that he needed more wardrobe advice from woman. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because and, and even I mean, look at Randy Savage at WrestleMania four. Randy Savage and Elizabeth both came out for for all four matches with a completely different look. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. But it's just it's weird to me that Sting wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, th- my impression of Sting is that he is a guy who, when he wants to, can half-arse it. That, that he can just phone it in. And it, I, I, I felt that he kind of did that tonight. Yeah. In, in, every, in, every, in every match, pretty much. Like, he didn't... He wasn't bringing anything to the table that... Like, it was mainly the opponent bringing it to him in most of these matches. Yeah, uh, it, and as a result of that, I kind of felt like... I mean, there were bursts of great offense in this, which is pretty common with these two facing each other. But the magic kind of seemed gone in this matchup. And I don't know if that's because Muda's undefeated streak had just ended really anticlimactically, or if it was that Sting didn't really give a performance that that he should have. But this match really seemed passe at this point. When at Bash 89, it seemed like, you know, two superheroes duking it out. And that whole comic book feel wasn't there for this match at all. Um, and, and that kind of drug the whole thing down for me. Yeah. Do, do you have any more positive thoughts about this one, Chad? Um, I, I agree with most of what, uh, Charles said. I, I mean, I still thought it was pretty good, but certainly a, a, a steep step down from the bash 89 match. Uh, Sting did hit a really good monkey flip, in the beginning, and I will compliment Gary Hart in this match because he did a couple of things that I really liked from a manager standpoint where he massaged uh, Muda's stomach on the outside after Sting kicked it a couple times. And then he did, I thought, a really neat thing where he uh, implored Nick Patrick to uh, make sure Muda could see his fingers when he was counting to five because uh, Muda doesn't speak English. So if he's just counting and he can't actually see the fingers of the count, he wouldn't know uh, how close he is to being disqualified. So I thought that was some pretty good uh, managerial work from Gary Hart, but the match overall I didn't think uh, reached a really exciting level. Two and three quarters from Meltzer. Uh, tad high. Yeah, but I think so too. I, I mean, I did think that Muta looked quite good when he was doing his uh, his signature offense. Yeah, I mean, now Muda is, and, and Charles certainly can attest to this, uh, you know, Muda is definitely another guy that he can have on and off nights. Um, I mean, this is a guy that I think probably currently has Charles's 1991 match of the year uh, so far, and he's in that match. And then I've seen plenty of Muda matches that are just pretty awful, and he's a main reason why. So yeah. uh, he did look pretty good tonight. Yeah, I agree with that. So, um, yeah, I mean, Muta also jobbed out here. Not for two. He's getting the Doom uh, treatment. 
Oh, it was a bit weird. I mean, he, he was going to this uh, pay-per-view undefeated, and now they've dropped him out twice in a row. Yeah, he was still the TV champion too, correct? Or uh, had he already... No, he was still the TV champion too. Did he come out with a belt? I don't recall seeing it. I don't think he did, but uh, I seen, I think he lost it to uh, Arn early on in uh, 1990. Yeah, just a few weeks after the show. Yep. Interesting. Okay, well, was Muta gone after that? I mean, he sticks around for a bit, doesn't he? Uh, not not too long. Not too much right. longer after this is when he goes back. Because so. it, it, this seems to be something of a kind of, uh, you know, burial on the way out type thing. I, I don't know yeah. about burial, but, you know, he's certainly being jobbed out. Yeah, he's certainly uh, getting phased out uh, by this point. And just uh, real quickly, I looked it up and uh, actually, uh, yeah, he lost the uh, the TV championship on january 2nd which aired on january the 12th so uh yeah he was certainly on his way out and i think um another thing with muda at the time i don't know if it's in the observers at the time but it's definitely something that's been mentioned a few times since then um they wanted to turn muda babyface and gary hart whether it was protecting his own spot or whether he actually legitimately thought it was too soon whatever the case was gary hart like was very against that and kind of talked Muda into refusing to turn. And that's kind of when the booking committee lost interest in Muda because they wanted to make him a baby face and he wouldn't turn. He, I mean, he was getting some like baby face pops and stuff, right. Um, for his moonsault and other kind of like in the context of 1989, he's quite something quite different, isn't he? Yeah. Even, yeah. even here with his handspring elbow, I would get a good pop. Interesting. One one quick thing, uh, as I was just looking up when he lost to Arn, uh, he actually beat Sting for the TV title in Atlanta, uh, and that was September 3rd. So, again, this kind of maybe goes back to the theory that, for us, we haven't seen this match uh, since the bash, which I know felt like a pretty decent amount of time, Parv, yeah. uh, since we'd seen this match. But uh, for these fans, you know, it's only been a couple of months since probably a lot of them seen this same match. So some of the magic may have been lost there. And they also had two matches on TV during those months that were given like a, a good amount of time. So um, they actually had a match on Power Hour, I think in September or October, that was my favorite of the whole series. So okay. so this feud has kind of been a little bit hot shot, could we say? We've seen this match like five times already. Yes, points. Seems like it may be a little diluted by uh, this point in time. So the next match, then, making their first appearance on the pay per view so far, the new Wild Samoans taking on Doom. Um, now, there's a lot of hard head stuff in this match. I noted um, where there's a clash of heads between a member of Doom and one of the Samoans. Um, um, what do we make of this? I'll ask you first, Chad. Uh, this was, uh, probably my first, uh, I would consider bad match of the night. I thought Doom, in their first two matches, while certainly not looking spectacular, had done some kind of solid work. Here, I thought their control segment just had kind of no flow at all, where it was just punches and kicks and chokes and 
really no direction at all. And then there was a couple of uh, miscommunication spots here uh, with the one I know with a knee lift, which was completely bizarre between the two teams. The crowd, again, I mean, you could hear a pin drop during this match uh, with two heels that nobody really cared to. Uh, and, and the Samoans kind of did work as the de facto babyface of this match. Uh, so Fatu does get the hot tag, and uh, Doom and Samu ran heads, and Samu lands on top for the uh, pin and kind of a another sort of weak, coincidental-type finish that we've seen a good bit of uh, already tonight. So I did not like this match at all. Chad, it's the Samoan Savage, not, not Samu. <laughs> it's uh, uh, Samu is gone at this point, I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of working de facto uh, babyface. Charles. Yeah, I didn't care for this match at all. I think it was the worst. Um, I'm just looking ahead. I think it was the. It was either the worst match of the night or the second worst. There's one that I think was pretty close, but. I mean, how do you do a heel versus heel match with no cheating? That was what I kept thinking: is okay. When's someone gonna? When are we gonna see like them try to out cheat each other? And that never that never happened. It seemed kind of a waste. Yeah, well, one thing I noticed is that uh, we we didn't see uh, Nitron get involved again after the first match. Or woman, like there was no like very very little interference, considering they had two people out there with them. He must have heard that you don't mess with Samoans. <laughs> and, uh, and and our favorite, the big kahuna, didn't get involved. Yeah, that's either. what I was going to say. He was afraid of the uh, big kahuna that was coming running after him in that terrible Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Um, so, Doom jobbed out also to the Samoans here. Not for three. Yeah. I, I mean, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I, I, I think that definitely... I mean, I... Again, I keep going back to the. I mean, I may. I'm, it's so tough that I'm defending WCW being smarter than this because they're obviously stupid in a lot of areas. But I, I, I definitely see that as a case of the skyscrapers would have gotten that victory in that fashion. And Doom, and, and it seems like they really did not see, I guess, much potential of them as a tag team going forward. Uh, I know on our next show, Doom has a pretty kind of big development, and that's uh, kind of ironically when they begin to flourish really as a team. But uh, here they certainly were given the jobber role. Um, one thing that interests me here is that Meltzer gives says, for the work, this was a three-star match, but there's no heat, so two stars. Would you? It doesn't sound that, like either of you would agree with that. No, that's... To me, that's one of those kind of Meltzer statements that, you know, as much as I respect Meltzer and agree with him a lot of the time, probably 90% of the time, he also has that other 10% where I just shake my head and can't understand any uh, any logic in the argument. And that's one of those, both from the rating and from the, uh, I mean, I'm never one that I, I do like crowd heat in a match and I certainly think it can enhance a match and make it more excitable and enjoyable. But uh, I don't think I view it that much because as a show, I know as we go along next year that I really liked is, uh, involves doom and it's doom versus the rock and roll express at the great American bash. And that match has a pretty wretched 
Crowd Heat, and that was one of my favorite tags of 1990. So uh, I don't let that kind of detract me from enjoying a match. Where, where are you on that uh, particular uh, talking point, Charles? Where, where crowd Heat, um, does it affect your rating of a match at all? Yes. Yes. Uh, there are exceptions to every rule, but it is something that I care about. Um because it's not something that I think is the end-all be-all. Like, you can watch a great match where the crowd doesn't get into it, or you can watch a bad match where the crowd's extremely involved. But um, but I'm always impressed by any match that can take a crowd that's a tough crowd, either because they're rebellious or because they're tired or whatever the case is, and turn them around and get them into something that they normally wouldn't be into. So I, I do put some value in that. But... Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I guess that's where I stand. I, I do care about crowd heat quite a bit. Um, understanding that sometimes there are other factors that make it more or less important than they might be normally. Yeah, for me, uh, I, I'm a, I'm quite big on crowd heat, and it can completely change my perception of, of a match. Um, uh, and. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely affected some of those matches um, it, during the All Japan watching Chad. There were some of those. Uh, I, I I specifically remember the Pete Roberts versus. Uh, is it? Uh, yeah, uh, Fuji, I think. Right. I, so I I ranked that rock bottom. Where, yeah, Masa uh, Fuji. Yeah, Fuji versus Pete Roberts. The two guys sitting around in arm bars, to zero, like literally pin drop. Uh, he, I saw. So obviously, I ranked that bottom 150. There were there were loads of guys who went wild for that match. So, um, yeah, I, I'm quite effective for it in my ratings. Yeah, I knew. Uh, I knew based on uh, both of you guys how you view wrestling, I'd be uh, kind of on an island on that argument. But uh, but the, the, wanted to make it known. The, the, there are other people like I know uh, um, Dylan uh, Wacko, for example. He, yeah. Uh, categorically argued in the past that crowd heat doesn't matter or, or I think, I although think, it doesn't matter though it doesn't affect his ratings of uh like it, the the match can be better than the crowd can appreciate or something like this right right i know will too is one that uh he's mentioned before where he can he watches a lot with uh kind of the sound turned down uh while his wife is sleeping and that's kind of a situation i found myself in especially when we lived in an apartment uh, where I'd have to watch a lot of my wrestling kind of with the sound turned down. Uh, so I guess in some ways I kind of had to adapt to my own surroundings, uh, but I found that it didn't affect me. See, I, I can't. I see. I find it really difficult when I can't hear the. So on the early AWA matches, for example, um, where the where you can hear the commentary, but you can't hear the crowd or the um, the what's going on in the ring. It, it, this also happens with uh, like old 70s matches, you know, where it's solely commentating after the fact, but you can't really hear the, the crashes and the bangs in the in the uh, in the match itself. That that takes me out of things. I, I kind of need that sound to feel fully emotionally involved in the match, you know. Right. Um, all right. So our next match, the total package, Lex Luger versus Ric Flair. Um, and immediately I thought that this match was worked a little bit differently from most of the other matches that we'd seen so far 
in that um, we started off quite slow. So I'll, I'll go to you first, Charles. Um, well, I have a few things to say about the match and then also just the placement of the match. So Ric Flair versus Lex Luger was the biggest match that they had at this point in time. There was no bigger match they could have run. They had been building it up for a year, and then they just tossed it in the middle of this card. It just it, Again, it goes back to the concept maybe not being right, especially for something like this, which to me was the match that they could run and have some success with at this point because both Luger and Flair were really hot. Um, and I think people wanted to see them have a match again. because, And they did a really great job, to their credit. Um, if you remember at the end of Starcade 88, Luger said, or Flair said, no more title shots. And since that time, Flair and Luger had not interacted, except for their brief little brawl at the Clash, which if you remember, you know, Jim Ross said, Flair and Luger, and like the crowd was really into that moment. Um, so I think there was excitement for this match, and that's why I was... I don't know that this was the right place to do their first match in a year. But setting that aside, um, I was impressed, first of all, that Luger color-coordinated with Sting and that he color-coordinated with Flair. So um, <laughs> Luger wore um, lime green to match the lime green and Sting's black tights in their match earlier in the night. And Flair was wearing pink and Luger wore a nice purple to go with this. So i got to give him credit for that. Um, <laughs> you're getting top water of analysis with Charles this evening. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was this match was good, but it was it, 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 Flair Luger is one of those matches that's just ingrained in my head because it's one of the first rivalries I got into uh, as a wrestling fan, and so it's always really bizarre to watch this match for me because they're in opposite roles, and so it's, I always call this bizarro world Flair Luger. Um, I thought this was good. Uh, I, it was just, it was hard for me to get over like the conventional spots. Like, like I, you know, I kept waiting for um, Flair to chop Luger and Luger to flex and Flair to beg off and it never happened. Or I kept waiting for Flair to take the slam off the top and, you know, all the stuff that usually happens in Flair Luger matches and those spots never came. But um, as, as great of a heel as Flair is, He's so good as a babyface, and I thought his performance in this match was so good that I kind of wish he had had more time in this role around this time that he hadn't turned so quickly as he'll be doing, you know, pretty soon. Because um, I still think there was a lot of mileage in this match with this dynamic. I mean, we're, we're going to see Flair Luger. You're going to see plenty more of that as you get into 1990. But it's this, they kind of, they both turned, and I think they both lost a little something. Um, this was their chance to get it right, and it kind of felt like they blew it, um, even though this was a good match. Yeah, uh, Chad? Yeah, this this feels kind of like a, almost like a kind of forgotten match in their rivalry. I know a lot of that is based on me just watching the 1990 stuff, and uh, I would argue overall this is a rivalry that doesn't get enough play as far as internet wrestling fans is concerned. But uh, this this was really neat to see them kind of have the roles reversed here. This match was worked at a sort of slightly, uh, you know, a slower pace, more, I guess, NWA championship style match to me with uh, Lex was really jawing at the fans. And we had uh, some really good uh, kind of back and forth 
mat work, I thought. Uh, Flair's arm work in particular, I thought was basic, but uh, very welcome from what we'd seen tonight with a lot of kind of bomb throwing and clotheslines and shoulder tackles. And it was, uh, uh, I really relished in the fact that Lex resorted to cheating too, whereas he turned the tide with a rake to the eyes and uh, he had a really good military press and kept John at the crowd as he went on with this. Uh, so the, so the finish goes to a draw, uh, with, with, uh, with flair having the figure four locked on. And I thought this was a satisfying match, uh, and certainly the best match we'd seen so far tonight. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I pretty much got the same, uh, notes as you two. It was interesting to see the, uh, reversal of roles from last year. Um, and, one little note I've got is that uh, in a in a recent uh, in a recent uh, iteration of one of my many arguments with uh, John D. Williams, um, he was arguing that Flair basically wasn't very good at mat work, so he didn't do it that much. And in the it, I mean, his argument was that in the first ten minutes of most Ric Flair matches, he does more stuff than most people do in like half an hour, which is I, I guess true. But my argument is that I've seen him many times start slowly. And I think in this match, he does quite a good job of doing slower mat work for the first 10 minutes or so. I mean, he he works on um, basically Luger's arm quite consistently and in a very focused way. With a keeps on going back to the hammerlock. He works in a butterfly suplex, which of course would hurt the because it's a double uh, underarm would hurt the arms as well. Um, and then he he keeps on working on that arm until he transitions to the leg late on um uh and then yeah i thought that was quite uh quite interesting to see flair work a very different match from the type of match that we'd just seen him work with uh great muta which is obviously a lot faster pace um right. again i think that the luger was a bit slow and lacking in urgency as the clock was running down towards the end there i would have thought that he he'd be uh, wanting to win a bit more um, and the the crowd, which was a bit kind of quiet during this match, I thought, did go wild for the figure four at the end. Um, and I thought that this finish was kind of a almost a mirror version of Bash 88, Chad. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, I mean, this was sort of it. Uh, you didn't have the little cut or whatever, but you did have kind of... Uh... I guess with the roles reversed, where in that match, if uh, if Luger did not have the cut... Uh, you think Flair would have submitted and Luger would have won the title. And here, if there'd have been a couple more minutes on the time limit, it looks like Luger would have had no choice but to submit and Flair would have won. So kind of a role reversal there, too. Yeah, I mean, Flair, um, it, it, Meltzer does mention that this match actually went 17 minutes. <laughs> so um, it longer than the 15 minutes uh, advertised. But he, he gives it three and three quarters. So... Yeah. Think, do you think that's fair? A bit generous? I, I I would go along with that. I mean, this is certainly a match that uh, if if a 1989 yearbook ever would occur, once uh, Loss and Will are done with the 90s, uh, if they go to the 80s, I would, I would argue that this match would need to be on that set. Charles, any, any further thoughts on this? How about Flair's mat work? How about that as a talking point? Yeah, I, I think the idea that Ric Flair didn't work the mat is 
ridiculous and not true. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, just and, and I think it was really good and really focused. Everything that you said, I agree with. Um, I, I I don't know that I would go quite as high on that rating, but I can assure you that if we s- somehow make it to 1989, which I hope we do, it, it's definitely a match that would go on. Um, it seems... It, it, it's not, I don't know that it's like a key chapter in their rivalry, but it seems like a really interesting sidebar. You know what I mean? Um, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I agree with you that up until this point, it's been the best match of the night. Yeah. This, this might seem like a, a weird uh, analogy and pretty uh, kind of geeky analogy, but it almost, this match sort of felt like a fan fiction type version of a uh, of flair versus Luker. <laughs> You well, you know, <laughs> this might be what we got something along these lines had they actually done it right. So yeah, I, I, I can see, I can see your point there. Uh, I remember in the Observer around this time. I don't remember exactly when it was. There was talk of putting Luger with Ole Anderson, and they didn't come out and say that when Arn and Tully were, you know, in negotiations to come in, that that was the plan to put them with Luger too. But I'm assuming that's where that would have gone, and so that's it would have, we would have had Flair versus the the Horseman with Luger in that role, and I think we would have had more matches like this. Yeah, my my, my only uh, point on that is that it, I mean, again, I understand that this is a slightly weird crowd at the Omni tonight, but. It does. It does feel like Flair isn't quite as getting the big cheers that he that he was a couple of even last show. You know, they, they don't seem as audibly. You know, he doesn't seem as over basically on this show that he. Is that something that you notice at all? Or yeah, I, I would actually just blame this crowd for that. And Chad, do you agree? Because in 1990, if you look at the first like month or so. Ric Flair still, I mean, seems that he's so over as a baby face and he still seems fresh in that role. And I mean, he's still getting a crowd reaction every time he shows up and it just seems right. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think based on what we've seen so far that we can kind of chalk this crowd up to being kind of an outlier. And, yeah. uh, it, it didn't seem like really throughout this show that any of the baby faces got as good a reaction as they were getting at other various places. Um, so I, I think, I think the crowd just sucked. Yeah. I mean, with the, the row warrior Steiner's match as well is, is kind of like, you know, for that match to be almost heatless is unthinkable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that you know. all, I mean, you could have had a crowd to compare to like the super brawl, uh, sting Luger versus Steiner's match. Yeah. I mean, you could have had a crowd like that for a baby face, versus babyface match and we've got you know it was pretty terrible heat wise so so the next match here Samoans taking on the Steiner brothers um and uh Chad I've noticed here there's a lot of dog action at the start of this match yeah yeah. (laughs) this this is uh the, the, the Steiners have been pretty good so far up to this card and reigning my uh annoying tendencies with them in but uh, this this took forever to start. Uh, the Samoans went through their little ritual at the beginning uh, about three or four times together. Then they hug, which Rick then insinuates that they're gay. He gives them like the little uh, gay hand thing to them. 
so so we had all that nonsense before the beginning of the match. The actual match uh, was okay, but one thing that I felt during this match was uh, we'd seen so many types of kind of clotheslines and power moves uh, in the tag matches up to this point that I ended up getting kind of immune to them. So it seemed uh, it, it just didn't resonate with me by this point in time in the card. The Samoans teased a little uh, dissension, but then got together. Rick chased around the big kahuna. At one point, I know Rick bit someone in the ass. I can't remember if that was the Savage or a Fatu, uh, but that was annoying too. Uh, Scott did hit the Frankensteiner for the first time tonight, but uh, but we ended up, the Steiners ended up getting DQ and kind of a weird finish where it didn't look like the referee totally caught what was going on, and then he let it go for uh, about 30 seconds afterwards with both of them fighting. So it was a little bit of confusing finish. And I thought this match uh, wasn't very good overall either. Yeah. Rick Steiner's uh, a lot like a peanut brittle, said Jim Ross. Half nuts. Charles. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of this match either. It did seem, I mean, I agree with everything Chad said. It did seem like it took forever to get started. And um, there was too big of a deal made out, made of the braid that fell out. Like that was like the centerpiece of the match. And like, and I just kept thinking, okay, the braid fell out. <laughs> Move on. Move on. We get it. The, so, the braid fell out. So what, just, ha- what happened there? Does, uh, does Fatu have extensions or something? Is that like, how, how is his braid falling out? <laughs> I, I guess that's what happened, or maybe like he got it was actually yanked out of his head. I, I don't know. Ooh. I don't know. It just, um, I, I just <laughs> thought, I'm like, good lord, just okay. You know, why is the braid such a big deal? Move on and have a match. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't impressed with this one at all. I, I had a little bit of a problem with Rick Steiner making fun of the, um, the kind of Samoan uh, dancing there that they were doing, the kind of ritual dancing. And then Rick Stein was kind of making fun of it. Um, the crowd were meant to be behind that. I have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, yeah. My, my favorite thing was, I mean, in the beginning, he uh, they hug each other. Then Rick does that hand signal. But then at the at the very end, uh, when at the end of the tournament, when the Steiners come out to congratulate the Road Warriors, uh, who's, who's hugging them but Rick Steiner, who was just <laughs> making fun of the same thing. 20 minutes before, but, but Rick does have a fascination with, uh, any prop or any type of, uh, attire from the other team that falls off because remember the last shows when he took uh, Teddy Long's hat and then did that <laughs> stupid, like gangster type yeah. dance with it or whatever. So, uh, Oh, I hate it. I hate it, Parv. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, <laughs> I, I guess I, I just keep thinking. I, I maybe that that car accident that he had. If you remember Shy Town Rumble, um, <laughs> maybe that car accident that Scott talked about on that show played with a short term memory or something. Oh God. <laughs> so w- one of the things I noticed that in this match is that the Frankensteiner was just a hope spot. What was going on there? Yeah, yeah, the the, the uh, Samoan popped up almost immediately from that, which I thought was very strange. I can't remember if the Savage or Fatu took that, and I don't know if they were trying to go into the he landed on his head thing, so it didn't really affect him. But uh, it was shocking how fast he was back on offense. 
And then uh, the Samoans get a DQ win here over the Steiners. So, I mean, yeah. what, what's the... Like, it, running with your theory here, this is how this is exactly how the skyscrapers would have been booked, is it? I think so. I think yeah. so, because that, uh, that kept the Samoans in play that they could have won the tournament, uh, kept the Steiners in play that they could have won the tournament, and it also kept the uh, Road Warriors in play. So, so going into this, if I was to guess which of the four teams would be the one jobbing three times, it would have been the Samoans, not Doom. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I agree with, with Chad on that. I mean, just I think his theory is spot on, because this, that, that booking for the skyscrapers would have made perfect sense. I, I, I just find it really weird that they had they must have had at least a week or, or more even to think about that unless unless Sid unless as you were saying that Sid possibly was saying that he might be able to wrestle or something but yeah I mean I, I mean a punctured lung sounds fairly dangerous so I mean yeah. I, I don't know yeah. an injury of course that Sid would become a specialist in yeah maybe he had a big softball game on this night so that's the real reason <laughs> so. <laughs> The, the um so the Samoans are heading in with a chance to win the tag tournament. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's Great Muta versus Lex Luger now, um, and just as Luger came out here, excellent. He's still selling the leg injury uh, as he walks out, um, and Muta also uh, is looking a bit worse for wear here. So I thought they did quite a good job of making it look like these guys had been through a war already by this point. Um. Which may talk uh, a little bit to Sting coming out to no music as well earlier on, Charles. Yeah. Although, although I feel like he'd been through less of a war than Luger. Um, so uh, basically, kind of, um, Luger works as the de facto babyface here, I thought, during this match. as He's the one coming in with the injury and Muta targets the leg. Um, getting on uh, what Terry Funk calls an advert an inverted Indian deathlock at one point. Um, I uh, I liked his leg selling here. He never stopped selling it. Charles, what do you think? Yeah, I love this match. I think it was even better than Flair Luger, actually, and I don't know if you'll agree with that. I, I can see disagreeing with that. But, um, but, yeah, Luger's selling was so good. He was so good at working holds and... You know, Muda, I thought, looked the best he had looked all night. Um, he started getting a babyface reaction, which told me, I think, that fans were ready for, for Muda to turn and that they would have accepted it. Um, I was really impressed, and this goes back to what we were just talking about with the crowds. The crowd wasn't really into this at first either, but they won them over through the work in the ring. I think Luger's selling and Muda's offense like really got the crowd involved in this when they weren't involved in it at first. So I give them credit for that. Um, yeah, and so, and I thought Luger, like, really worked hard in this, and again, notice, he color-coordinated, he, color he wore red to match Muda's black, so I'll credit him with that again, so, um, yeah, I, I think to this point, I mean, I know that we still have the big finale, but to this point, Luger has been the best singles worker on this show. Oh, yeah, for sure, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, Ch- Chad, did, do you agree? Best match so far? Or... Um, yeah, I, I would have maybe Flair Luger a little bit ahead of this, but I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of disappointed that I went second because it feels like I'm gonna be echoing what Charles said. But this match really took me by surprise. 
Uh, I thought this was a match that I'd heard nothing about. Um, I had never heard anybody really talk about it. And anybody that knows me through all these shows knows how much I love body work selling. And Luger here, we've seen him have a, uh, a real good 1989. And this match to me kind of felt like his magnum opus in a lot of ways because his selling was spot on. And uh, in some ways, this felt like him turning babyface. I don't know after this show whether he started teasing uh, how soon it was after this show where he started teasing the full-on babyface turn. But this, he seemed really sympathetic here with the uh, with the leg injury and Muda targeting it. So I thought this was outstanding, uh, outstanding selling job on his part. And Muda did a good job, too, attacking it. So I, I really enjoyed this match a lot. Yeah, and uh, I, I also really enjoyed it. And uh, m- my big note here is that I've often talked about on this show Luger being uh, massively improved as an offensive worker. But this, I think this is the first time we've really seen him kind of come on leaps and bounds, you know, in a big kind of selling performance, which uh, I don't recall seeing from him before. Um, can you think of one, Chad? Where he's... Uh- well, I mean, he does good at the uh, very end of the Starcade 88 match yeah, versus yeah. Blair. He, he's really good in that, too. He kind of does some of the same things where he'll, uh, you know, he'll go for either a big power move or he'll jump up and land on the knee. And he really, he does, he does a real good job of kind of collapsing if he lands on his leg. Uh, so, uh, but, the, but this, you know, he'd been a heel throughout, uh, throughout 1989 and been an effective heel but uh but we th- i thought this was his best uh sell job of 1989 but, from what we'd seen you know this is the sort of performance that you'd typically associate with a randy savage or a bret hart or someone like that you know yeah, t- you wouldn't I mean, think lex luger would have a performance like this in him would you well I, I think this type of match to me if you're building a case for a luger as a good worker i i would put uh, actually, this match and the Flair match kind of back-to-back because you saw him in the span of uh, around 30 minutes have two pretty different type matches. Uh, in one match, he was the heel. In this match, he was pretty clearly the babyface. And it, it, it was believable. I mean, in, in the span of that, he really kind of changed his whole persona in some ways, but it was all believable. And uh, he did a very good job in doing it. it yeah, he... my, favorite, my favorite line in the Observer that covered this show was that when Dave said that the only two guys on the show that were capable of working three different types of matches in one night were Flair and Luger. And I, <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because that's something that if you told people that that was actually the thought process in 1989 in the Observer, they probably wouldn't believe you unless you pulled the quote. No, yeah, yeah. that is true. Yeah, no, right. I, but I mean, us having worked through all of these 89 shows, I can definitely understand it. Uh, of Lug, you know, my perception of Luger is that he's a good worker, basically, yeah. uh, which uh, to many ears may sound. Um, counterintuitive. Well, he's he's certainly been more consistent than someone like Sting on the Super Shows, and while he's not had, I would say, any, I guess, blow-away Match of the Year candidates so far in 1989, I guess your mileage may vary on the Steamboat match, uh, but uh, 
but he's certainly been able to be placed and come to that semi-main events slot, and you're going to get a good match and a good performance from him. So, so Muta's miss gives us a DQ finish here, uh, and by my calculations, that puts Luger on 35 points, Flair's right. on 25, and Sting is on 20. So, and even even the miss. I'm sorry, I just have to mention this real quick. Luger sold the hell out of that. Like, when, he actually took a bump for it. I've never. It was great. <laughs> yeah. What was the color of that miss? Did you? Uh, did anyone clock it? Did anyone see? Uh... It, it was looked, green. It was so green. Was so then Luger was color coordinating with Christmas to wrap up the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our penultimate match here, uh, the kind of uh, the final match of the tag tournament, and finally Iron Man plays as the Road Warriors come out to take on the Samoans. So, um, yes, Chad. <laughs> Oh boy, uh, this uh, what what <laughs> man? What a way to end the tournament here because you could see, I think uh, the the clear fatigue in this match. Uh, Cornette did a good job on commentary going through the scenarios. That's probably my best looking uh, my best compliment on this match. Animal was completely gassed. He barely got up on a pile driver, then no sold it. Uh, he looked completely out of it. The hot tag by Hulk was disjointed and awful. Animal botched. I, I don't even know what he's going for at the finish, but eventually Hulk comes off the top with a clothesline to win the tournament. Uh, the Steiners come out to congratulate them, and this was just a, a real bad way to end this tournament, uh, this half of the tournament, as this match was really uh, just bad, just really bad. In the direct Charles? Yeah, there's been some talk lately at Pro Wrestling Only about following a really good match with like a popcorn match or a crap match. And it's a shame that it had to be the finale of the tournament <laughs> that took that spot. But that's kind of how I felt this match came across. Like it was um, like the fabulous Moolah against Wendy Richter or, you know. Maybe I shouldn't use that example, but but something. <laughs> it was a trough. It was a trough, right? A trough. It was. It was definitely a trough. Yeah, I um, I, I thought it was the worst match of the night. Um, I know that the pile driver no sell is something that I mean has been mentioned before about the Road Warriors, but I hated it again. Um, it, it was really sloppy. Yeah, I think the fatigue showed. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't care for it at all. I mean, one of the, the I mean, I noted the animal no selling the pile driver uh, as well, but it, that happened after the um, Samoan actually struggled to get him up for the pile driver. Um, so, was animal actually being uncooperative there? Do you think? Like, was he saying no, I don't want to go up for it? So, so then when he did manage to get it off, he no no sold it. I, I couldn't. I couldn't work out if the if that struggling was kind of you know him being uncooperative. I I, I think um, mostly these guys just were not communicating well, and right. I think Animal especially was just so blown up that uh, it's possible he may not have been able to call spots or really understand what spots were being called. I don't know really who would have probably have called this match. 
but uh, but there was a lot of kind of miscommunication spots. But it didn't look like, uh, I mean, it didn't look like kind of shoot. They were like shooting on each right. other. I think it was more a case of them uh, animal just being completely gassed. I mean, I mean at one point the Samoan tried to uh, backdrop him, and animal basically landed on top of yeah, his head. Yeah, that that was one of the there's there's a rope running spot in the AWA set uh, involving the Road Warriors. Ironically, that's one of the most kind of blown spots you'll ever see. This, this might rival it because that back body drop was one of the worst ones uh, I can remember seeing. Man, and and then what happens at the end of this match is a hawk um, in a really awkwardly work finish comes off the top, and again, I mean, animal. I, I don't really know what he was doing doing this match, but yeah. In all three of the Warriors matches, uh, it ended with Hawk coming off the top. So just in terms of like, we already seen him do this twice, um, and that's it. They they win the tournament. So I mean, I I can't help but feel that uh, either the Steiners or Doom or or anyone really would have benefited more than the Warriors from winning this tournament. Like them winning it felt pointless in a way. Yeah, I don't know if this was kind of like a uh, a way for them to sort of give them a uh, maybe a, a a team of the '80s nod by them winning this tournament, but uh, but th- this I, it certainly didn't feel very satisfying them winning. And uh, the only thing I can imagine watching this match with how bad it was was can you imagine if uh, Spivey would have been <laughs> <laughs> somebody well, may have not yeah. Or Sid. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm on that. Meltzer gives this one, minus one star and says that the crowd gave very little reaction, which is true. Yeah. M- minus one star about right? Uh, I mean, I, I usually don't go into the negative type stars, but for me, this is, uh, you know, a, a dud or a half a star. It's it's pretty low on the totem pole. It was bad. All right. I'm guessing you agree with that too, Charles. Yes. So just before we're in the main event, something occurred to me. Where is Tommy Young tonight? And uh, this is... Does Tommy Young carry on working into 1990? Or, like, does he disappear? I can can answer that. He... There was a a taping at um, Center Stage not long before the show... And this match actually aired on television. It's something that will definitely make um, a 1989 yearbook if that ever comes to surface. But it was Tommy Rich against Mike Rotunda. And the power went out, or the lights went out in the building or whatever, right around like a ref bump or whatever. Anyway, Tommy Young ended up tripping over something or someone. Um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but he had a career-ending injury and could no longer referee. Oh, shit. So he's gone? He's gone. He's oh, gone. Oh man! I never, yeah, I've never heard that. I never knew how he like ended up. So that's interesting. Uh, Charles, do you want to give your uh, Norman theory? I think before the the final tag match was when we saw his last appearance. Yeah, um, it kind of takes wait. I'll wait until we talk about Flair Sting because I actually it would it would pay off after that match. So I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> just, just before we get into the, uh, the the main event then, given that we're never going to see Tommy Young again, and he's been almost a constant uh, here, I didn't even realize that, that was it for him. I just noticed he was gone. 
Um, uh, any thoughts on him, Chad? I mean, he's one of the, uh, when, when people talk about greatest refs ever, uh, he's probably a name that would be bandied about. Uh, how do you feel about him? Not not one of my uh, personal favorite referees of all time. He, uh, I'm, I'm never a huge fan of a referee that interjects himself into the matches. I think Tommy Young maybe uh, was one of the most, uh, him and David Manning seem to be kind of the two biggest offenders of doing that throughout the 80s. So he's, he's not up on my list so, so why do you think he gets mentioned so often as greatest ref ever is it, is it just because he was the nwa's ref at this point yeah yeah i think uh i mean people with him and the hebners i think it's mostly just they're the most recognizable i mean i'm not a person that would unsubscribe to the theory that some of the best refereeing is the one you don't notice right uh based on their place so i do think as far as the 80s is concerned, and nowadays with uh, wrestling communities, those kind of couple are the by far the most, uh, I guess, well-remembered type referees. So, uh, Charles, do you have any more fondness for Tommy Young than Chad does? I, I do. I do. I, I can see the argument. Um, I guess the way that I saw Tommy Young differently from someone like a David Manning is that Tommy Young did interject himself, but I always, I always felt like, and I might feel differently if I go back and watch a lot of this Crockett stuff that I haven't seen in years, but I always felt like he was doing it to try to get over the match. Whereas David Manning seemed to be doing it to get over David Manning. And maybe that's not right. I mean, you've watched yourself more recently than me, so I'll go back and see how I feel about that. But the biggest thing that I will never forget about Tommy Young is the bump that he took in the Road Warriors versus Arn and Tully match at Starrcade 87 was so insane that yeah. I don't even think most wrestlers <laughs> should take that bump. It, it was it was a crazy bump. Like that that I think is my biggest memory of Tommy Young. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be, I'm sad that he's gone because he's been a, a real mainstay. Did, did he ref, uh, Starcade? No, he didn't ref, uh, the main event of Starcade 83, did he? Uh, no, that was <laughs> the, uh, the fabulous, uh, performance of Mr. Ganitsky. So, uh. just while we're on the subject of referees, uh, of this era, what do you think about the All Japan one? because uh, he's also very fondly remembered uh, joe uh... yeah joe Higuchi. i don't know maybe i'm just an outlier because he's always somebody uh as you get into the 90s and i'll butcher his first name but his last name's wada he, he's the mainstay referee for all japan and i really love him I, he's probably like my favorite referee of all time but I, i've never been a huge fan of joe either because i do see uh i guess one thing that i never I just don't like when I feel like referees are kind of taking the Major League Baseball type uh, umpire stance where, and you're probably not familiar with this part, but like in Major League Baseball, you know, you'll have the umpires that'll get into arguments with managers and get right into their face and mm. uh, almost feel like they're trying to become a part of the show, so to speak. Yeah. So I, I'm usually down on any uh, referee that gives... I guess a noticeably uh, flamboyant or uh, performance. Right, you want the ref to be someone you don't notice, basically. 
Yeah, or, or just somebody that stays impartial, kind of stays out of the way. Does I mean, I, I can think of some occasions with Wada where he, you know, is checking on a guy and, like, shaking his face and stuff like that to make sure he's still okay to continue the match and stuff like that. I'm not bothered by that, but, uh, I mean, in this show, in the Flair-Luger match, we did see Nick Patrick do the spot where Luger's trying to grab the ropes uh, to prevent a sunset flip. And Patrick kicks his arms yeah. uh, to, to do the flip. I hate that spot. That's honestly probably one of my least favorite spots in wrestling. Because I can't see from any logic standpoint, or if you're in a submission and you reach for the ropes and the referee kicks it away, that them, them spots drive me crazy because I can't understand how that would ever make sense. Yeah, And I would describe that as a Tommy Young spot. Because he basically yeah. pioneers it. I mean, Tommy could bump well, and he did have some uh, memorable performances. I thought his work, and uh, again, the Starcade 88 match was really good. The way he pins, uh, you know, with when Flair gets the pin, he kind of lifts his arm up in the air triumphantly, uh, showing Flair's the winner. That was definitely a noticeable referee uh, counting spot, but one that I enjoyed. I thought that added some kind of pizzazz to the finish. Okay, well, goodbye to Tommy Young. Uh, unsca- un- unexpected. Uh, I'm a, l- a little bit stunned by that. All right, let's, so let's uh, let's get into the main event then. Uh, it's Sting. This is uh, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Um, um, my main note here is that Flair kind of worked this match noticeably as a kind of de facto heel all the way through it. Um bumping around for Sting and, and even begging off at one point. Charles. Um, I thought this was an excellent match. I don't know that I would have liked it as much had I not watched the full show. Something that I was been waiting to mention until we got to this match is that watching Starcade 89 uh, so I could do this show is the first time that I've watched a complete show um, in longer than I can remember. So... Um, everything I've been watching is usually on a be- in a best of format or a yearbook format where I'm just seeing the highlights, but not necessarily the entire show. So I think that made me appreciate this match more. I'm not sure if I would have enjoyed it as much if I watched it in isolation because I thought it was really good in the context of the tournament. It really just, and, and what I mean by that is that I guess this truly was a case where Sting, in order to be the man, really did have to beat the man. And that urgency, I think, came across a little bit stronger by seeing the points and knowing where everyone stood for the night than it might have just as kind of like a standalone match. Um, Flair was great here. I thought Flair gave a really great character performance. And to kind of tie it back to Luger, I mean, we, we talked about how good Luger has been on this show, but... As good as Luger is, Flair is just miles above him. And and that's not an insult to Luger by any means. It's just that Flair, I thought, was so good in this match. Um, and I, I think that this also may have been their best match, even um, in spite of the fact that they missed their time cues and went too long because they hadn't worked all the way to the finish at the 15-minute mark. Um, I still think this may have been the best match these that, that they had. Um now, as far as the Santa, okay, let me explain that. So, in my mind, in my perfect scenario, in my mind, um, Telly Blanchard would have been signed during this time. 
you know, I know that he was almost signed and he wasn't because he failed the drug test in the WWF before he left. But in the perfect scenario, you know, Flair would have shook his hand. Arn and Ole would have shook his hand. Arn would have raised his hand. Santa Claus would have been in the ring celebrating and then hit Sting with his bag of gifts, taken off the Santa outfit, and it would have been Tully, and then the Horseman would have beat Sting down, and that would have been the exciting ending to the show. Right, okay. So where does Norman fit in? <laughs> Norman wouldn't have been Santa. Tully Blanchard would have been Santa all night. But you, oh, wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have known that it was <laughs> Okay, so what? So... Tully would have had to warn, like, kind of padding or whatever to make him look, uh, to make him look big. Right, right. And you wouldn't have been able to, they would have never done close-ups of his face, obviously, because you wouldn't have, you would have just thought it was just some Santa, and then at the end of the night, it's Tully. That would have been a great end to the show. You're right. Uh, d- d- Chad, uh, main event, uh, thoughts? Um, I say main I, event, I, final, last match. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I may be lower on this than Charles. Uh, I did like this match a lot, but these are two guys that I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I do have a problem with these two guys mostly. And I think uh, me and Charles in some weird way kind of flip flop on our preference of the matches. Cause I know I like the uh, great American bash 90 match better than he did uh, going through the yearbook. But I, I did like, uh, the psychology of Sting really did kind of have to prove himself and prove that he uh, did have to beat Flair to quote unquote be the man and uh, to propel himself as the star of the 90s, which is something, you know, it's Starcade 89 with the tagline Future Shock. So that is something they wanted to portray. And uh, to go into Charles's fantasy booking, I think if they could have done that and pulled that off, that would have been a lot uh, more affected than the uh, angle that did result in them turning on Sting, which we'll get to in a show coming up. But uh, but as an overall match, I thought it was good. Uh, and Flair definitely was working heel, which it felt like it had been a little while since we'd seen that. So that was enjoyable to see him kind of jawing with the fans and with the referee uh, and getting back into kind of a Flair heel zone for this match, uh, which, you know, I could believe too because this was – sort of a match that Flair wanted to win. So when he really wants to win, he kind of went back to some of his more uh, desperate tendencies to do it. Yeah, I mean, my my feeling is that, I mean, as much as I'm a massive uh, Flair fan, um, I always feel that the Sting matches aren't as good as you'd hope they'd be. Um, I'm noticeably lower on the Clash 1 match than basically everybody else. Um, and it's because I feel that if, if Flair ever works a Flair formula match against anyone, it tends to be against Sting. Um, do you know what I mean by that, Chad? Like, it, it, like it feels like these are just kind of cookie-cutter Flair matches to an extent. That said, this match isn't one of those, okay? Um, so, um, Flair did a lot of offense that I hadn't actually seen from him before. At one point, he does an abdominal stretch into a pin. Uh, yeah. Which had, I mean, have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen Flair do that before? No, then that looked really cool because that was almost kind of like a British type uh, niche in his uh, arsenal. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, so in his stretch sequence, he, we got all of the normal big chops and things that you expect. The big uh, stalling uh, suplex, his knee drop, uh, that abdominal stretch into a pin, an inside cradle... 
another big suplex, uh, a butterfly suplex, a shin breaker. I mean, I've just written here, and Flair doesn't have great offense, because that's been another talking point on PWO of late, that people say that Flair doesn't have very dynamic offense. But, I mean, it seems to me that when he wants, he can bust it out with the best of them. Um, so I, I really enjoyed all of that stuff. Um, in, in, a, in a kind of third, very different match from him, I mean, if you compare this to the way he worked the Luger match, it's very, very different. Um, that said, I still think the Sting isn't really bringing a lot to proceedings here. I mean, his offense isn't very dynamic. I feel like, really, apart from a big splash, in, you know, apart from the Stinger splash and a clothesline, I don't really know what he does in a match, Sting. Um, so... Yeah, it felt quite unsatisfactory when he walked out with a the win there. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Charles, you're the one who uh, really liked this match a lot. And I understand that, you know, Flair gave a great performance in it. But what did what do you think Sting brought to the match? I think everything, I don't want to say everything, but I think the majority of what I liked about this match was Flair. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, this wasn't Sting's best night at all. Um, I think there are times when, and probably as you get into the nineties a little bit, I do think there are times when Sting really looked like a great wrestler. Um, but this was not one of those nights. Um, I felt like he was carried in all three matches. Um, and especially in, in, in this one. So yeah, I, there's nothing good that I would say about this performance here really. Right, um, and and then well, just before we get to the uh, the end of the show here, um, Soli's with the Row Warriors, um, and uh, Hawk gives this a strange promo. He says, "We come out to Iron Man every stinking match, and we live up to every stinking last one of them, or something." Um, and then yeah. the and then the credits roll, and uh, Sting cuts a shouty promo. Um, that yeah, it essentially gets cut off. Uh, this was WCW production at their finest, where these kind of promos were going on as you've seen the scroll of the credits, and then it just ended really abruptly. So, so just before we give uh, our end of show awards here, um, two little talking points before we wrap up. One, the tournament concept. What do you think about giving over the whole Starkey pay-per-view to this uh Iron Man tournament. Charles, I'll uh, ask you. Um, I think it could have worked, but I think uh, there's a couple of things that I would have liked to have seen a little bit different. I'm not even sure if this is possible, but since we're talking hypotheticals, then we can assume anything's possible. I think the idea of a two-day pay-per-view with two events in the Omni on back-to-back nights would have been great. So you buy, like, maybe they increase the price just a little bit, but it gets you both nights. Um, but anyway, like, I think if you did that, extended the time limit for each match to 30 minutes, and then also added Brian Pillman to the singles stuff and the Midnight Express to um, to the tag team stuff, that gives you eight extra matches on the show. So that's 20 matches, but you divide it over two nights. You can do you know, a little bit longer shows or whatever. Um, to me, it would be remembered as an all-time classic show. Um, and it wouldn't have been so rushed because just because there's a 30-minute time limit doesn't mean every match would have had to go nearly that long. But something like Flair Luger could have 
maybe the Flair Sting finale could have. Maybe, probably not any of the tag matches, but it just it gives them a little bit more freedom um, when they need to go longer within a storyline point. I mean, because really what they were trying to do was Starcade, and I wondered if you thought this too, Chad, after watching the 1994 yearbook. They were trying to do the championship carnival in one night. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, it certainly felt like, because, uh, I mean, they really hadn't, uh, they didn't have a G1 climax until uh, 1991, correct? That's right. Yeah, so this uh, predated that, and this really felt like a uh, a kind of championship carnival type, uh, round robin style tournament uh, condensed to one night. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, did, did, I mean, Meltzer in his notes uh, here is saying that this was basically a show for the hardcore wrestling fan, and he says he doesn't think a casual fan would get into seeing the same guys wrestle three times. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that that that, that you know the casual fan, or the casual American fan at least, can't really get behind that? No, no, I I, I think it's all about presentation. Because, um, I mean, the Crockett Cup, if you compare it to the Crockett Cup, that was always successful um, in 86, 87, 88. The difference there was that they allowed the show to go two days and they gave the matches a little bit of space. Um, and I think that's what the show needed instead of just literally, it was just like, it's kind of like an assembly line pay-per-view where it was just match, match, match. There were no interviews between the matches even Sting's moment got cut off. Like they did all that build for three hours. And then when it was time to celebrate the win, guess what? Show's over. So, um, yeah, I, I think two nights might've helped it, but one night it was too much. So, so the other talking point I wanted to bring up, uh, which, uh, you've kind of, uh, telegraphed a little bit there, Charles was, uh, match sequencing, something we've talked about a lot, uh, recently. Um, do you think that, the order of the matches perhaps hurt because we did touch on it earlier that the idea of having the three Samoa matches on last seemed a bit silly in, in a way. Um, do, do you think they could have uh, ordered these matches a bit differently? Um, do you, how do you think the show was booked basically? I, I think the singles side was booked very well. Um, there's probably not anything I would have changed there as far as the order of things. But yeah, I think on the tag team side, they, they made doom a non-factor so early in the show. And I think that that hurt the drama a little bit because instead of having, you know, four teams who, you know, could potentially pull this off, they immediately threw one out. So, um, I mean, and that happened with Muda too, but I think the difference there was that Muda wasn't, you know, working, like his match, like they didn't front load the entire tournament with all of Muda's matches. So I think that's the difference. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Chad? Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Um, for both of the talking points, I think that I don't necessarily think you'd get burnt out, uh, seeing the same performers three times. It's just how the matches are presented. And on the single side, we saw three uh, three flare matches and three Luger matches that all think worked to a certain extent and were worked kind of differently. And then uh, to contrast that with the tag side, uh, I know by the third Road Warriors match and even the third Steiners match, I'd seen so many kind of power moves and clotheslines. And they didn't really 
diversify their matches enough to it did seem kind of the same thing. So uh, I think it's all based on execution. Do you think we got the right winners? Um, oh, I mean, I, I, I think uh, it, it's so tough because of what's about to occur with Sting. Uh, what's about to happen with him that sort of changes the direction for a while. Uh, I, th- I think if they did want to really kind of strap the rocket to Sting, this was not a bad format to do it in. If we'd have had a little more of a celebration, like Charles mentioned, and with the tag thing, I don't. I mean, I don't think the Road Warriors were the best choice considering they were pretty much on their way out uh, by this point in time. But uh, I mean, it's tough because the Steiners were the champions, so I don't know if you want to give them a rub either. And uh, the Samoans were a non-factor team that you hadn't seen much of, and Doom got jobbed out. So it's kind of tough to really uh, figure out where they were headed with the uh, tag booking overall. Um, you know, I just thought of this. The Rock and Roll Express returned to the NWA right around this time. Wouldn't that have been, like, such an awesome surprise? Like, that probably would have, like, the heat would have been strong for all their matches because they would have been back and they would have been fresh and they probably would have, they would have worked better matches with everyone. I don't know if I want to see rock and roll against road warriors and against Steiners. So maybe it wouldn't have been a good idea, but, but that would have been like a, a really good last minute substitution too. Just if you yeah. look at hypotheticals, it, it would have been Ricky Morton getting his ass kicked for three matches in a row, but maybe if they'd been able to pull off some kind of underdog victory or something, it could have felt good, I guess. Yeah, I can see, uh, I mean, did Rock and Roll, I can't even think of it, but Rock and Roll Express versus the Steiners sounds like kind of a, a fun match on paper that could possibly work if everything happened and be really good. Uh, so that's intriguing. That would either be a classic or it would end up with um, one of the Rock and Roll Expresses getting their neck broken. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> your only two scenarios. Yeah, in their first match back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so it's come to the time. Uh, for the end of show awards, you're our guest this week, Charles. So, um, match of the night for you. Um, match of the night was uh, Flair versus Sting. Chad, I am going to go with, I think Flair versus Luger. Actually, ooh, interesting. Yeah. So my pick is a different one again. I'm going to go with Luger versus Muta. Yeah, because I I really thought that was smartly worked. So three different uh, and they all feel valid to me. I was I was about to say that that all three seem like good choices. Yeah, I don't I don't think this show had like a a blow away match of the year candidate that we'd seen on most of the shows in uh, 1989. But I I do think this is a show that kind of gets shit on a lot, and uh, it did have a couple of really bad matches. But it did have a lot of decent matches and at least three, uh, I thought, good matches and a couple of other pretty good matches. So, uh, I, I mean, I'd give this show kind of a slight thumbs up overall. I think there were a lot of solid matches on this show, you know. Yeah. I well, mean, uh, uh, let me put it this way. How many WF pay-per-views have there been to date with this many good matches on it? Right. I mean, I mean SummerSlam 89 is held up as a... 
you know, a great pay-per-view by a lot of people. And I don't want to kind of isolate all our uh, WWF <laughs> 80s fans. But, uh, but I mean, you know, uh, you can argue that Rude versus Warrior is better than any match we saw here. And maybe the uh, Brain Busters match. But other than that, I can't see an argument for a third match as good as the worst of the three matches we just named as match of the night. Right. No, and and it's not like all of the other matches were terrible either. Right. So, um, all right. MVP. This should be interesting. Charles. Yeah. That's a tough one, but I think I'm going to say Lex Luger. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> Chad? I'll see. I, I was... I was geared up to agree with Charles. Um, I mean, to me, my uh, my MVP, it, it is a between Luger and uh, Flair, and I'm going to go with Flair. Oh, and and my, my reasoning for that is uh, I do think that Luger's match versus Sting was the worst match, I guess, probably, of all the six matches that these two guys had. Even though Flair and Muda was very short, I thought that was effective. I thought uh, Flair Sting was a lot better than Luger Sting. And then I, of course, really liked Flair and Luger versus each other. So it's kind of, I thought Flair was maybe a tad bit more consistent. But it's really close. Yeah, I would have said Flair if not Luger. So, yeah, I could have gone either way. No, I mean, Chad's got an unwritten thing in his contract that he has to pick Ric Flair for MVP. Uh, I didn't pick Ric Flair on Clash 9, so (laughs) I love that theory. (laughs) Um, no, well, t- to be honest, I mean, Ric Flair does have three very different performances here, which, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, it's a very strong performance from him, but, um, it, this is going to be one of the, uh, moments where he's a victim of his own high standards in a way, whereas, uh, kind of the expectations that you have of Luger and the performance he gives you here is above the expectation, whereas, uh, you kind of expect Flair to be excellent all the time, so... <laughs> on that kind of rather unfair basis, I'm going to give it to Luger. Um, not only does he give us a great offensive performance, um, he also gives us a great selling performance against Muta as well. Yeah. And uh, and he's really good at the little heel things as well, early on in the show. Uh, the way he draws the crowd and this sort of thing. So, yes, I'm going to go with Luger. Uh, Billy Graham Award. Charles? Um, can you refresh me on this one? So the the, the, the the Billy Graham Award is the award that we give to the least valuable player. Oh, um, I would probably either go with, hmm, there are two that I'm debating between. I would either say Rick Steiner or Animal, and I'm not sure which one. Okay, well, uh, I'll come back to you then, Chad. Uh, I'm going to go with Animal. Uh, Rick Steiner annoyed me in that match, but I thought Animal in the first Road Warriors match was okay. In the second Road Warriors match, uh, pretty bad. And then in the third one, that's uh, maybe one of the worst performances we've seen in one of these shows, Parv. Yeah, well, I'll just show my uh, colors here. I'm definitely going for Animal. I thought he was awful. So, (laughs) Charles... Yeah, animal it is. You convinced me. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Great, fantastic. Okay, well, we, we've uh, we, we've come to the end. Thank you very much for this, Charles. Did you did you enjoy them? Yeah, I did. I did. I'd love to come back sometime. I appreciate you inviting me, and um, 
thanks for actually making me watch a show in full for the first time in years. <laughs> yeah, and no, we we will be talking to you again. Uh, in uh, well, you've got the uh, sheet there, Chad. But when is it? Is it in a few weeks, right? It, well, it's actually our next pay per view. Uh, it it'll be Wrestle War ninety. Uh, which I know is a show uh, with the main matches that both me and Charles hold pretty fondly. But uh, in between then, we're going to be doing some kind of unique stuff where uh, we've watched all the super shows of the 80s now. So we're going to go back and watch a a few TV matches. We have a lot of recommended TV matches. So we're going to see kind of what we can get our hands on and watch, and we're going to do a show reviewing those. And then the show after that will be our uh, Best of the 80s Decade Awards, where we'll probably count down some matches, uh, MVP of the 80s, maybe some worst performers of the 80s, uh, overall thoughts, stuff like that. Uh, So it will be a few shows before we hear Charles again, but he will be, uh, when we do have a guest again, he will be it. Yeah, and I think Charles is actually the guy who compiled that list of matches to see, wasn't he? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was one of the ones that uh, I, I do have to go, because I know with that, that's going to take me kind of going through my collection and kind of picking and choosing. So we may have to edit that a little bit, but uh, we should be able to watch at least about 10 or 15 uh, TV matches that are heavily uh, pimped, if you will, in the 80s. I feel kind of dirty, but I may have to go to YouTube for that. all right guys well thank you very much uh i think we're running about three hours here so we should probably wrap it up yes so so long everyone all right thank you guys fans for all of us here at wcw center stage for cowboy bill watts and the american dream dusty Rhodes. i'm jim ross saying good night everybody